Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Farron Golding, grew up in Wakefield, a small city near Leeds in the northern part of England, where he started skating in the early 2000s. As he was finishing college, Farron started writing about skateboarding, first for Sidewalk Magazine and his local shop Welcome's blog. In the following years, after completing a degree in multimedia journalism at Manchester Metropolitan University, he started freelancing with Slam City Skates and Quarter Snacks, where things really took off thanks to his famous Favorite Spot series with Gilbert Crockett, Andrew Allen, or Anthony Van Englen, to name a few. In 2022, Jamie Owens took him on board as a contributing editor at Closer Skateboarding magazine, and in recent times he released a few pieces for GQ. At only 28 years old, Farron has already made a strong name for himself in the skate media world, and the future is looking bright. So here's my conversation with Farron. I hope you'll enjoy it. I usually start these interviews the same way with every guest and, you know, start at the beginning. So tell me about like growing up and finding skateboarding. So right now you're living in Leeds, but you grew up, I believe, in Wakefield, which is not far from Leeds. And I think that's where Ben Powell actually from Sidewalk is from as well. Yeah. So Wakefield's a really small city, about 20 minutes away from Leeds. It's like 15 minutes on the train, 20-ish minutes in a car. You can get there super quick. And yeah, I was born there and then grew up in a small town slash village just outside of Wakefield. The reason I started skateboarding is because when I was a kid, my mum worked full time and was at university too. So mm -hmm. my grandma helped take care of me a lot. And when I was real young, I used to buy Simpsons comics from this little store in town. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whenever like I'd be out, like say my grandma was like doing shopping or like errands or whatnot, I'd like be along and she'd be like, go get yourself a comic book or something and come back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I used to buy Simpsons comics from this store just a little news agents. And then once I went in and there was like, I guess they didn't have the Simpsons comic in that month or it hadn't come out yet. And there was some other like random sort of like kids magazine. I was really young at this point. Okay. That had stuff about like video games or like whatever in. And I just like picked that up. And I remember there was a photo in it of Tony Hawk skating half pipe. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess this coincided with a Tony Hawk game coming out around that time. And that's like my earliest memory of skateboarding. So my earliest memory of skateboarding is from a magazine, but not a skateboarding magazine. Okay. So okay, cool. I just remember the vague recollection is seeing this photo of Tony Hawk and being like, I want to ride a skateboard. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's like a little bit hazy. It's really hard to pinpoint the exact year that I started because the way I can frame it is the DC video was the first ever video I saw. And that oh, yeah. came out in 2003, but I saw that after I'd started. Okay. And then my first proper board was an alien workshop board, which I knew I had when I was 10 years old, but I had a couple of boards before that. So I started skating somewhere between the age of seven and 10. Okay. <laughs> but I can't really remember it. And then, so I grew up kind of skating a local indoor park, which was essentially in like, there was this big shopping center mall type thing that was like geared around in inverted commas, extreme sports. Mm-hmm. 
So I went there quite a bit as a kid. And then like that park, the people who originally own it, like the company shut down and then the mall itself took over the park. And then like a smaller skate slash snow shop moved unit in that center and took over the park. So I grew up skating that park a lot as a kid and then skating in Wakefield as well. Street and the like concrete skate park got built in Wakefield that, as you mentioned, Ben Powell, who was the editor of Sidewalk and is also from Wakefield, Ben had a really big hand in getting that built alongside a guy called Wayne Miller, who's the owner of the local shop in Wakefield, Division 24. Okay. And then as I got a little bit older, I think I started skating Leeds, which was around, pretty much around the time Welcome Skate Store opened. Oh yeah. This would be like 2010 by this point. So I've just fast tracked mm-hmm. <laughs> quite a lot of early years, but yeah, kind of grew up in those three places, like local indoor park, skating Wakefield, skating Leeds, all of which were like half an hour on public transport from where I lived just outside of Wakefield, basically. You just mentioned that one of your first boards was an Alien Workshop board. I was just, uh, whose pro model was it? Do you remember? No, it wasn't a pro board. It was this purple Don Pendleton team model with just like the Mosaic Era Alien Workshop script. Sick. And I still have it. It's toast. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's missing about four inches of tail. Like it's the typical like little kid skateboard until it's dust sort of <laughs> setup configuration. But yeah, it's funny that that was my first board because I wasn't like a kid who was into Alien Workshop. It just ended up being one of the first boards I had. But then as I got a lot older, I got really into Alien Workshop and then realizing my first board was a workshop board. I had like a nice sort of nostalgic tie there before I even was aware of like what the company properly was. Like I watched the DC video a lot when I was a kid because that was my first video. And like Abe's my favorite skater. But again, that wasn't a progression from being a kid. It was something that like came about in a roundabout way. Went full circle. Yeah, as I got older, I like found these things in skate and I really like and then realized I was like looking at them, but not necessarily understanding them. Yeah, or what they, exactly. How great they were when I was like a kid. Like, I think I was so young when I first started skating. Like, I've got the DC video on VHS. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Yeah, so it was a VHS tape. Okay. Yeah, it's a VHS tape. So yeah, all the like things like that, I didn't, it's not like from being a really little kid, I was super into those things. It's more when I got older and started to like realize what I liked. I realized there was this nice little tie that I'd been looking at those things when I very first started skating, but I didn't process them in the same way. Sure, sure. No, of course you didn't have the context and everything. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, tell me about like a meeting with uh, Ben Powell, because I feel like he must have been like a strong influence in what you're doing today, basically. Yeah, Ben's like the catalyst in my like story, for lack of a better way to put it. If it wasn't for Ben, like we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I don't feel I'd have done any of the stuff I do. Ben's too humble to ever like acknowledge that. But (laughs) I still like every time I get something published, I'm really stoked on. I'll still end up texting being like, thanks. (laughs) Even though it was literally 10 years ago now. But yeah, so that indoor park I was talking about that I grew up at. Ben, being from Wakefield, would come by every so often. And a guy who was the manager of the park and shop, a guy called Chris Simpson, who's still a friend of mine, he was really about putting like events on, so like local comps and things like that, and knew Ben a little bit through Ben coming to the park and with it being sort of a local spot and Ben living local, he was more than down to help put stuff on. Something they did that was so crazy when I was a kid, this really stands out, is they, do you remember Lord of the Lines? No, I don't. So it's this competition that DVS did. I think it was DVS and Matics maybe. And it was like three obstacles. They probably did it in America first. It was three obstacles and it was like, whoever does the best line wins. And somehow through like Ben and Sidewalk and Chris who worked at the local park, they put on a Lord of the Lines event in the mall outside the shop. So they 
They wooded the floor because I guess they had to ensure it that they wouldn't like damage the floor, cordoned it all off. They had a rail, a block, and maybe like an up block. And like anyone who was like locally sponsored came, like one of my best friends, a guy called Brandon Harrop. He's from the same little town just outside of Wakefield mm-hmm. where I grew up. He was like hometown hero as a kid and he's still one of my best friends. Like he was skating in it. And then people from Leeds who were sponsored came over and skated it. Like a guy called Tom Harrison, he used to ride for Nike. He co-runs a production company now called Crowns and Owls that does music videos for Slow Tie and various other people. Mm-hmm. He's still a really good skater. So like him, like Mikey Wright, who rode for Blueprint, was probably oh, there. Yeah. But then beyond that, there was like Danny Brady, Chewy Cannon, like pre-Palace Lev Tanju oh, was, yeah. I think, like on the microphone. I'll send you the video after this. You can put it in like the show notes. Or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy that like all these people were in this mall outside the skate shop, the strip that ran through the center. Right. Anyway, Ben would do like things like that, basically. Okay. And there was another guy called Nick Powley who worked for Vans. So the combination of like him and Ben being nearby meant that like little things would happen, like little comps, events like that. Mm-hmm. So Ben was kind of always on my periphery. I like, I, I didn't know him, but I knew who he was. But my good friend Brandon, or Brenner, as everyone knows him, he knew him pretty well because Brenner was pretty good and would skate comps and stuff and was sponsored by a shop in Leeds. So he was like on Ben's radar. He knew him on a more friendly level. So I guess like through knowing Brenner and Brenner knew Ben, Ben was like a degree of separation away. And I would like see him at the local park. I Mm. remember being a little kid and trying to learn frontside big spins over the hip at the park. And he was playing skate with one of his friends. And I think my board like shot out and like ankled him whilst he was playing skate or something that he didn't like. Actually, I have an earlier memory of Ben. There was a skate park called The Works in Leeds where they used to do really big events like Van Shop Riot and War of the Roses, which was like, um, those two events were like huge. They were such big turnouts. I remember Ben singing Venus in Furs, fucking Tom oh, yeah. Penny's Shiny Boots of Leather song, like drawling it in his like deep wakey accent over the microphone because that was playing <laughs> over the speakers at one of those events. That's my earliest memory of Ben. Another one is once I was walking around this pool at that big indoor park at I think it was ShopRite and Stu Graham was like tanning it around the ball and he slipped out and his board cracked me in the shin. I was like, I just got there. I couldn't skate the rest of the day. It was so bad. Like my shin was bleeding. Oh yeah. yeah. I just remember like Ben witnessing that on the microphone and being like, oh mate. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, to go back to it. So Ben was always kind of coming and going through that park. Right. And like got to know him a little bit through that. And then by the time I was 18, I worked at that park as like Saturday boy, basically. Because it was a park and shop, like in one space. Like you'd go through the shop and then the park was in the next room. And they were both like pretty big. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the park was like small, but for like considering it was attached to a shop, it wasn't like, you know, usually an indoor park has a shop. This was like fully like a full blown shop and then a park. So it's kind of nuts the space that they had. Mm-hmm. So I worked there as I was finishing college because in England you do GCSEs age 11 to 16 then you do college 17 18 then go to university and after so I was doing my A-levels at college okay and would see Ben around here and there and was getting to the point where I was finishing college or approaching finishing college and I had not that much of an idea of what I wanted to do but I'd started reading stuff like Chromeball and um, Jenkum was quite early on at this point so I was reading like Jenkum quite a lot what year was that was that like 10 years ago more or less this would be 2013-ish. I would say like late 2012 going into 2013. Yeah, because Jenkin just celebrated their 10th year, I think, uh, not, not that yeah. long ago. It was funny, I emailed Ian Mishner at Jenkin at that point. 
or around this point, just asking for general advice. No, it was it was a little bit after I'd first started actually writing about skateboarding, so I've skipped ahead there. But mm. I saw him at the Guggenheim when I went for Alexis. Oh yeah. Thing, and we'd never met, but he like remembered me having emailed him when I was young, and he got back to me and was really like nice and helpful. So I've always remembered that. Cool. So yeah, so I was reading things like Chromeball and Jenkem and there was this skate shoe review website called Rip Laces, which was kind of like Jenkem for shoe geeks. Oh yeah. So I was really into that. I was reading Boily Ocean as well. Boily Ocean was one that I really liked and just got a bit of an idea that it's funny when I was a little kid, people asked my mum like what I'd want to do. And I didn't have like an answer, but I was kind of good at English. Mm -hmm. I say kind of good. I wasn't like an outstanding student or anything, but I liked reading and I was semi-competent at at (laughs) English literature and English language. And my mum had a friend who's a sports journalist. So she was always saying when she realized how much I liked skateboarding and she had this friend who was a sports journalist she always suggested to me like oh maybe you could write about skateboarding so I feel like my mum kind of planted the seed in my head wow way before I would even have like considered it a reality that's amazing I was getting towards the end of my A-levels. I was doing English literature, media studies, and photography. Like, what feel like the teenage foundation of, like, someone that wants to work in journalism, media, or publishing, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think the manager of the skate shop suggested, oh, like, if that's what you want to do, you should ask Ben for advice or whatever. And then one day after college, I just, I went skating to the park. I'd, like, took my ball to college, jumped on the bus, went straight to the park afterwards. Mm -hmm. This would have probably been like winter 2012, I think it was. And yeah, Ben was there that evening and I got chatting to him and just said, oh, I'm finishing college, interested in writing and journalism. Could I do some work experience for Sidewalk? Yeah. And Ben was really stoked that someone had just asked him and he was, we just got chatting. He was like, yeah, like keep in touch. Here's my number, hit me up to, hit me up when you're skating. Mm Mm-hmm. We just ended up becoming friends over like the ensuing months. So then by that sort of spring coming on summer when I was leaving college, we were like pretty good friends. And then I remember distinctly we'd been out in Wakefield one evening. Charlie Birch, who rides for Palace, had been up. Charlie's a little bit younger than me. Uh He'd been up with his brother, Ollie. They were filming for something possibly sidewalk related or they'd just come to like stay at Ben's for the weekend and film. Mm -hmm. So been out on like a little filming mission with them and then... They drove home and then Ben was giving me a lift home because I lived just outside of Wakefield. I remember it so distinctly. We were like at some traffic lights and he was like, oh, I've got something you can do for next month's mag. And oh, yeah. It was like a news column. It was like 500 words of just like goings on in skating news kind of thing. The best way to like equate it was, you know, the thing Burnett writes at the back of Thrasher, like the trash section that's like rapid fire news. Yeah. It was like sort of similar to that, but not like he didn't frame it as that. But how I ended up writing it in retrospect ended up being like kind of like that, but not quite as rapid fire. It was a little longer for each subject. Mm hmm. So I was really, really chuffed. I wrote like 500 words news column. The very first thing I wrote about was Dylan and Austin getting on Huff because they were like my favorite skateboarders and that was like the big news. So that was like the first paragraph I ever had published was that. Sick. And Ben was stoked on it and he was like, yep, same again next month, basically. So I did the same again next month and that was issue 203 of Sidewalk and that was August 2013. When I was earlier in doing that, around that same, towards the end of that summer, Sidewalk and Nike SB did this like skate sort of basics book. Okay. And they were having an interview with Brian Anderson and Shane O'Neill in it. So they were the very first two interviews I ever did. Right, yeah. Which would have been towards the end of that summer. I remember like sat on my bed at my mum's and get a call on my phone and it's like Portland, Oregon, answer the phone and it's like Shane O'Neill on the other end. Wow. <laughs> I interviewed Shane O'Neill for an hour and then went and worked my bar job 
And then like a couple of days later, same again, like Portland, Oregon pops up on my phone, answer the phone down the other end of the phone. It's like, hey, it's Brian. <laughs> it's Brian Anderson. <laughs> so they were the first two interviews Amazing. I ever did. And then I did a few other little interview features for Sidewalk here and there, but I was mostly doing the folklore news section at the start of the mag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was doing that whilst working a bar job. And then I started doing some little blog bits for Welcome, the skate shop in Leeds, here and there. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much the first thing I did after Sidewalk. I was still doing Sidewalk, but that was the, like, the next sort of thing that came up. Right. So I'd do that like sporadically here and there. And if you Tom Krangelov for them. For Welcome. Well, I just, I, it was funny. I, I just reached out to Tom about an interview and did an email interview with him. And it was the first time I'd ever reached out to someone off my own back. But I didn't really have like a home for it. And then the welcome thing came up and I was like, oh, I've got this. Do you guys want it? Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so You kind of pitched it to them. You said, oh, I have this interview with Tom. Would you like to run well, it? Well, they'd, they'd already asked me to do some bits for him. So I started writing things here and there for their blog. And then I had that Tom K thing. Okay. Okay. I, see. I was like, oh, I've actually got a feature that could work. And then. So I did like a few things. I interviewed Jordan Trahan for them as well. Oh, yeah. So I was doing stuff for Sidewalk whilst working in a bar, then started doing some bits for my local shop, Welcome, on their blog. Mm -hmm. And then the print side of Sidewalk got canned, at which point I was like, fuck, that's probably it. Like, I don't imagine I'm going to still be doing stuff. Mm. But what that meant was that they needed more online stories. And I was getting to the point where I was really sick of working this bar job. And I was like, I think I said to Ben, I was like, I want to quit my job, but I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And I was like, I knew there wasn't a viable, like, staffed position at Sidewalk for me to take. But I'd been doing a lot of freelance stuff and had a good relationship with Ben. Mm-hmm. And Ben was like, you know, I can't give you a staffed job, but you can do as much freelance work as you want. Just don't wait for me to give it to you. So I was yeah. like, okay, cool. And then on what I guess was almost like a weekly basis, I was like, I want to interview this person. I want to interview this person. And mm-hmm. this would come up, that would come up. So I ended up like had a little period that summer. I think that was the summer that I was 20. I interviewed a bunch of people across that summer and made like a decent sort of like stab at my first endeavor at being freelance. I was also still like, I was 20 and I was living at home still. So mm-hmm. apart from like helping out, like chipping my mom a bit of rent money and some money towards bills, but it wasn't like paying full blown rent, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. like had a couple of decent months doing that. And then I was like, oh, this has been like really good. But I was also like, I think I need to go get a normal job again and go back to doing this like in tandem with something. Mm-hmm. So I, um, that skate park, and skate shop that was in oh yeah the center that i was talking about i was literally just like because i i worked there whilst i was at college and then worked in the bar at the same time then finished college worked in the bar full time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was doing the stuff for sidewalk then quit the bar job to just have a go at that for a bit and then i got to the point i was like yeah i need to get a job so i just like pestered the skate shop to give me a job again okay, okay. <laughs> which they did <laughs> and then would continue to just give me a job i would continue to like work there sporadically between like there going to university whenever i'd come home from university i'd work there again go back to uni come back the next summer work there mm. it got to a point where i was coming home from university on a weekend to do a cover shift because they were like oh we'll give you we'll cover your train fare if you can work this weekend so that was a very good like on and off thing that's sick yeah so between there and turning 21, a couple of my friends who I skated with in Wakefield who were a tiny bit younger than me, they were going to university. 
And I've been mm-hmm. skating in Manchester a lot just because I liked it there and a combination of going over to do like various things for sidewalk over there. And I really liked Manchester. Mm-hmm. So as I was doing that, one of my close friends, a guy called Charlie Lavery, who I have to say by name because he's like such a sweetheart and he's always telling me how proud he is of me, bless him. He went to uni in Manchester. So I was going over to Manchester more to just like hang out with him alongside going there regularly to skate. Uh-huh. And I was like well into the whole like factory records mythology as well. And I was like, oh, I think I'd like to live in Manchester. And when I was like first thinking of applying to university, I initially applied to go to Liverpool or I was going to apply to go to Liverpool, but I didn't end up applying that year. And then okay. as the following year came around and I applied to go to university, I was like, I basically applied to go to university because I wanted to move to Manchester. That felt like the most viable way to move to Manchester. But also I'd got a decent little portfolio of work in journalism by that point. So I figured I may as well go get a degree. Then I'm like schooled in it for lack of a better way to put it. And I have a good amount of freelance work behind me. So I figured by the time I graduated, if I kept freelancing, I'd be in a pretty good position to try and find my feet somewhere. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, Moved to Manchester, was there for a couple of years, then moved to Leeds before my third year started and commuted to Manchester because I was only in uni a couple of days a week. I just want to stop one second on this degree in, in college. I mean, the American college, like uh, university. Yeah, yeah. Because as you said, you, you had been doing interviews and journalism in skateboarding before that. But uh, do you feel that this degree that you did at Manchester, did it help you? And do you feel like it benefited your work as a writer, as a journalist? And also, did you see other people around you uh, at university that were in fields like skateboarding? Or were people like um, going towards other types of journalism? How was that whole experience basically of uh, going to college over there? I'd kind of just learned on the job. I had no formal, in inverted commas, training. I just yeah. learned by doing it. So I thought, well, I've got this far just learning on the fly. I should probably go study and learn how it works mm-hmm. in like a non-skateboarding context and stuff. So it was really good in that respect. Like I'm really appreciative that I got to learn that. Mm-hmm. Some aspects like of the course, I already knew how to do, but doing the course was very refining. Like I could do some video editing stuff and it was a multimedia journalism degree. So like what I already had a base in video editing stuff, what I learned on that course was like invaluable and 100% and doing so much video based stuff now, I probably wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for the stuff I learned on that course. Okay. Same with like audio editing and then also just more like writing beyond doing Q&A interviews. It was really good for learning more about that as far as like short news writing goes or whether it's long form writing. Mm -hmm. So it was really good in that respect. And I had really good lecturers. Like my main lecturer was a guy called Pete Murray. And before he was a lecturer there, he'd been like head of the National Union of Journalists. Okay. He was great. And I'm still in touch with him. He's great. I got in touch with him because I needed to figure out how to record a video-based thing. And he, it was really good with video-based stuff. Like even this long after graduating, I still like pester him about things that I need advice with. And he's still really helpful. He's been really good. And there was a couple of lecturers like that. So Mm -hmm. had the benefit of having like good lecturers who took an interest in what you were doing and never minded giving you advice even outside of uni as in outside of uni hours and outside of having graduated. Mm -hmm. So it was really good in that respect. As far as other people on the course, like it didn't seem like there was many people there who seemed like as interested in writing about a certain subject as I was interested in writing about skateboarding. Mm -hmm. It seemed like they'd kind of come into journalism on the whole fresh with that course rather than already having some little bit of a background. That's not to say I was like shit hot or anything. I was still like so, so green and all of that (laughs) stuff I did for Sidewalk early on that I'm, it was really valuable and I'm really happy it happened. If when I read those interviews now, they 
they feel very amateur. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I would say everything up until the point where I started doing stuff for like Slam City and Quarter Snacks, everything before that feels a little bit amateur in retrospect. But that's also mm. just like, I was doing it from a young age. That's kind of inevitable. Well, yeah, you had to go through that to become who you are now. It's part of the whole process. So you went to university, you studied for three years. Well, you were still working for Sidewalk. Uh... No, Sidewalk, kind of like, so the first year I was at university, I was still doing stuff for Sidewalk, like semi-regularly. Okay. Second year, loads of like publisher owner based stuff really started to sink in and the magazine like took a hit. So there wasn't as much opportunity to do online stuff with them anymore. Okay. And then just before I started third year of university is when Sidewalk got like canned in general and Ben and everyone got laid off. So by the third year at uni, I was still writing, but I was mostly focused on just passing the course because I was in my third year. Like I felt like I'd worked hard until that point. So mm. and I was <laughs> it's funny because I was still writing about skateboarding. because I wrote what the equivalent to my dissertation was on skateboarding. So, oh, yeah. I was still doing a couple of bits here and there, but mostly I was just writing at university and for university mm -hmm. throughout that period. And that was 2000 and... Yeah, I graduated university in 2019. And then the summer after that is when I started doing some freelance stuff for Slam C, which again was thanks to Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so after he stopped working for Sidewalk because they let everyone go, Ben had started working as teaching assistant he works as a teacher now but at that point when he was just finding his feet with it he was like doing some teaching assistant stuff okay and then on the side he wrote some stuff a few people including some editorial stuff for slam city skates in london mm -hmm. mostly working with a guy there called jake sawyer who's their main editorial dude you should have jake on the podcast he'd be good yeah for sure. i definitely want to yes yeah jake's great so i think it was a point where slam were stoked to have more editorial stuff coming out through them and i think the gist of it is they said to like ben can you either do more than you're already doing like he was getting paid for it of course but like can you take on a bigger workload or can you recommend us anyone that's could be good yeah competent uh... yeah competent <laughs> yeah and uh, he recommended me so then i got like put in touch with jake sawyer at slam and i met him previously just when i've been like passing through london like going into the shop for odd bits here and there i think we'd spoke a little bit over email so i started doing some stuff for slam's blog throughout that summer which got like a pretty good response i think the first interview i did for him was caleb barnett i interviewed brandon westgate I did like this retrospective on milton Keynes skate history that wig warland was involved with mm -hmm. one thing i kind of missed throughout all this is like Quarter Snacks was something that when I was young and first started to get interested in writing about skating, Quarter Snacks was something I visited a lot. Mm -hmm. And whenever I had anything published that had like something relative to New York, I would just send it to Quarter Snacks and be like, oh, hey, thought you might be interested in this. And most of the time, Coaster, who runs Quarter Snacks, I mean, granted, I didn't know who he was at that point, would usually get back in touch and be like, oh, thanks for sending it over, enjoyed it, blah, blah, blah. And they'd like maybe share it on Monday links. And I would always be stoked. Even if I'd sent it in, I'd be stoked when it made it to monday links sure. i guess like they if it wasn't any good they wouldn't have included it for sure so that's yeah. how i like first got in touch with quarter snacks just through like being a fan of quarter snacks and sending stuff just kind of uh sending them your work uh, yeah, yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so fast forward into like when I was doing bits for Slam, I think like Coaster regularly posted, would include whatever popped up on the Slam blog on Monday Links, which after a little bit included whatever I'd been writing. So then I ended up in touch a little bit more over email with Coaster at Quarter Snacks that summer. Yeah. And then towards the end of that summer, he was just like, oh, if you ever have anything you want to do for QS, like I'd be down for sure. Oh, so, nice. That's where that started. I think the first interview I did for Quarter Snacks was with Charlie Birch. Yeah, you mentioned him earlier, yeah. Yeah, so like I'd known Charlie since he was like kind of like a little, little kid. And I was immediately like, well, what's got sort of a good... I wanted to interview someone English for Quarter Snacks. And I was like, well, Palace is the one that has like transatlantic reach yeah out of anyone who i might be able to get in touch with so that seemed like a good one and it was around the point when i think like that deeper understanding video came out and he just got on so that was a cool one mm-hmm. and then not long after that i interviewed my friend nick sharrett who runs the palomino oh yes yes like a london-based online skate shop that specializes right. in skate media like sells you know boards hardware like a normal shop clothing but then nick has like such a good eye for finding skate media from all over the world and stocking it yeah like I'd got to know Nick a little bit already. So yeah, I pitched an interview with him and then that was for Quarter Snacks too. Yeah, so I was doing mainly Quarter Snacks and Slam stuff throughout 2020. Okay. So the first thing I did for Quarter Snacks that felt like a big thing for them was an interview with Gilbert Crockett, which I was really stoked on because he's one of my favorite skaters. Mm-hmm. And because it was at the point where the high top version of his shoe was coming out, Vans had asked for like a video component to accompany the interview. Okay. So my idea was that there's this spot, SunTrust, that he skates in downtown Richmond. Right. And I really like all of like the venue videos that Will Rosenstock makes for the shop in Richmond. I really like those and I'd clock this one spot, SunTrust, that he skates a lot. Mm-hmm. There's this one line in Old Dominion where he does he does a frontside flip of a three set and then it ends on like a switch, backside 50-50 switch, front 180 out on yep. a bench. Mm-hmm. And then it was also around the time the Vans video, All Right, Okay, had come out and he skates the same route. So I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Get Gilbert talking about this spot that he skated a bunch throughout his career. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of the text interview, I was like, oh, let's just sidetrack and talk about this spot that you skate all the time. Yep. SunTrust. So that interview was super fun. I really enjoyed doing it. Typed it up and then set about just making a little video component to go with it. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like snowballed. And before I knew it, I had this like five minute thing that was Gilbert talking about this one spot in Richmond, SunTrust, that he skated through his career and stuff. Yeah. So the interview with Gilbert went out and the favorite spot thing went out with it. And it got like a pretty good response. And then I did a thing with Lucas Puig for Quarter Snacks, not long after that. So it was like, oh, there's like more things coming up. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I need to check it out. Lucas is one of my favorites. That was like an interview with Lucas about his general career, but then I also talked to French Fred, Hadrian Buhanic, and Ty Evans about filming with him at various points in his career. So like cliche days, fully flared. Yeah, interesting. Period. All right, I need to check that out for that sure. Was that was in 2020 as well? Yeah, that was like winter 2020. So by this point, I was regularly doing stuff for like Quarter Snacks and Slam C. Still on like a freelance basis for both. So this Gilbert Crockett piece, did it like um, have a lot of interest straight away or did you just figure, oh, this is something I enjoy doing and, and as you kept putting more content like this afterwards, it gained more attention or was it like a hit with this very first piece on Gilbert? Um, I'm not sure. Do you mean like as far as the favorite spot things go? Yeah, 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 exactly. I think it was when I did the one with Ave that that's where it maybe like popped off a bit because that green bench story was so iconic it's it's such a wild story yeah so that was the second favorite spot thing i did that came about as a joke 
Like when the FA video Dancing on Thin Ice came out and he switched back nose once that bench, I was like, the last trick, yeah. I was like, fuck, is that is that the bench from the DC video? Which I knew because the DC video was the first video I saw. Yeah, yeah. I got text Costa as a joke, and I was like, oh, we should do the thing like I did on Gilbert, but get Ave talking about the bench as a joke, not thinking it would go anywhere. And then I remember like early 2021, I came home from skating one evening and just like sat on my bed, pulled my phone out my pocket because mm-hmm. it buzzed and it was just a text from Costa saying like spoke to whoever at Vans who spoke to Ave he's down to talk about the bench <laughs> no way so wow. I was so hyped on that That's and then sick. did that interview a little bit later and it was really funny when I did that interview with him it was like couched within one thing I realized with the favorite spot stuff is it kind of works really well to do those interviews couched within another interview so for instance I talked about SunTrust with Gilbert but that was in the context of a longer interview yeah the same with Ave he's my favorite skater so I wanted the opportunity to talk to him about yeah not just the bench but uh, yeah so that's been kind of like a package with things going forward it's like if a favorite spot comes out usually a week later we have like a, an interview about everything else from that spot sure but with the Ave one it was funny we were like doing the usual interview sort of making way through the questions and then got to the point where I was like, okay, let's talk about the bench. And he uninterrupted for 20 minutes, just told me the whole story. Like I didn't have to ask a single follow-up question or anything. He just like enthusiastically reeled it off. It was like he'd been like, not like he'd been like waiting to tell it, but like the, like how much of a saga it was and whatnot. It was yeah, so yeah, funny. Yeah. He just like unloaded the story, every detail of it. I didn't have to like ask any follow-ups mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was so incredible to hear it. And then it was like, I was on the edge of my seat, like listening to it he was like oh and then i get a replica made and i'm like oh my god what's next and he's like and then andrew allen rings me and tells me they've found the original so that was cool yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> long story short once that one episode of the favorite spot series came out i think that's when it got a lot of like eyes on it because a lot of people have yeah. thought that the ave one was the first one but the gilbert one was just before because mm. just because that's the one that got loads of attention and then from there did dick rizzo max palmer Andrew Allen. Cyrus, right? Cyrus Bennett? Cyrus was the last one I did, which I think is actually coming on like a year ago that that came out, just because they take a while to put together. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that, actually. Like, uh, for example, the the Ave one. So you interviewed him, and during the interview, you talked about the bench. Like, you didn't do two separate interviews, like a full interview on one side and the bench thing on the other side. No, it was all one interview. I like the text interview on Quarter Snacks is called A Certain Amount of Suffering and interviewed right. Anthony Van Anglin. But within the context of doing that interview, I like broke off and I was like, okay, side note for a minute, let's talk about the bench. Okay. And then I kind of realized that in doing that, people are already kind of warmed up talking to you. So yeah, rather yeah. than just jumping straight in on the spot, and that's how it had worked with Gilbert as well. Like mm. talking about SunTrust came midway through the interview. It works well. And everyone I interview are just skaters I'm really interested in. So I, I love doing the favorite spot stuff but if the opportunity is to talk to the skater i'm going to try talk to him about as much as i can and yeah that's just a good catalyst for the conversation in the first place so so yeah it's like i usually try and frame it as like oh we're going to do this interview and a favorite spot and we'll talk about the spot part way through the interview and then by the time you get to talking about the spot i sometimes feel it takes people like you know 20 minutes it can take people like 20 minutes or so to feel comfortable on an interview or when they're just a bit more relaxed or talking exactly so yeah. getting to talk about the spots by that point and usually it's things that they know these spots like the back of their hand they've spent so much time with them by that point it's really easy to talk to people about them and people enjoy talking about them so yeah yeah, yeah like dick rezo on grant's tomb that was another one where it was like a long form interview and a favorite spot max palmer coaster did that interview i just edited the piece 
Mm -hmm. And then Andrew Allen, I did, I kind of like flipped that around. So the whole interview was about LA High, but went off on a side tangent and talked about these, all these other little bank spots that he skated. Mm -hmm. And then that was a separate piece. And then again with Cyrus, Cyrus is just one of my favorite skaters. Oh yeah. Limousine had launched fairly recently. It seemed like a good opportunity to sort of like stock take on Cyrus's career. So Mm -hmm. did the Sombrero thing within a bigger interview and then they came out a week apart. And then I haven't done a favorite spot since the Cyrus Sombrero one but there's three in the works at the minute oh really wow yeah it's it's funny someone i think greg navarro who does a bunch of really cool video based stuff he does stuff for jenkum and films he was like so his favorite spot done i was like no it's not done it just (laughs) they just take ages to like round up the footage or get people no people are down for them like pretty quickly it's just there's a lot of footage to find like for one of the ones at the minute that i'm like figuring out i have a spreadsheet full of all the clips someone's filmed on this spot and then full of all the clips that someone who's kind of like adjacent to them like in their crew is filmed on this spot too and then other like notable things so the the Mm -hmm. process of like doing those things has evolved a little bit from it happening by chance to being like kind of meticulous in like finding all the source material for it yeah, it must take quite a while to well first get the interview going and then gather all the footage and then extract the audio from the interview. How do you do that actually? Do you cut the audio to exactly what you're going to keep and then find the footage to go according to it? Or do you kind of uh, work um, on both? And if there's a piece of the audio content that you feel is maybe not, not as necessary anymore, you kind of remove it? Or how do you edit these so- things? I'm usually like sourcing the footage as I'm putting the interview together, as I'm like organizing the interview with the person. Uh-huh. And then usually by the time I've got to the point where I'm interviewing the person, all the footage that I know of or that exists of them on that spot has usually been rounded up. Okay. So after I've done the interview, I transcribe it and then I go through the transcription and make a paper edit of their audio track. And as I'm editing, so, you know, just like as you would with text, cutting out stuff that's not relevant, like making it as succinct as possible, keeping like the most relevant and interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. So as I do a paper edit of their audio track, I make notes between certain lines. That's when I start getting an idea of like, because I've seen most of the footage by this point. Yeah. So, oh, this quote would pair well with this footage. This quote would pair well with this trick oftentimes there's people talking about a specific trick or clip so i make what you could like loosely dub a screenplay (laughs) in Mm. inverted commas which is literally just a transcription with notes going down it so from that i edit the audio Mm -hmm. to match the paper edit and then put the audio and footage in a timeline and i start referencing all these notes that i have like this footage works well with this quote this order of things works well blah 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 Mm -hmm. because editing the audio takes quite a long time too and hearing all that stuff back i start to get ideas of what will pair well so Mm. by the time it actually comes to like looking at everything in premiere pro and putting the video piece together i've listened back to the audio and I've read it and I've kind of thought about it so much that it all falls into place quite naturally and coherently. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when I've edited those things, the like beginning to end narrative of them is kind of as I pictured them before I dropped it all in a timeline. And then, yeah, like I said, I've spent like so long with it before I've got to actually editing the video that it all falls into place quite easily. Yeah. I don't mean easily as in like, it's an easy thing to do because they take a while to piece together. No, no, for sure. But it's quite organic, the process. I'm not singing my own praises. I just mean it's like, I've spent so much time with it that it all kind of comes together. Right. It's a really nice feeling that it does come together kind of as it had been ticking over in my head in the pre-video editing stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then once it's from there, it's just like a ton of audio fine tuning for the end parts.
I just want to come back for a second to, we didn't talk about this, but you did a, an interview with Greg Hunt. Well, you did two, but the first one you did was for Speedway. Yeah. It was like an online mag kind of project. So the website that's on Speedway was just like a little side project I started when I was still doing like online stuff for Sidewalk and like early into being at uni or in the year leading up to when I went to uni, I guess it was just a place to, if I had an idea for something that maybe wouldn't fit with Sidewalk, but wanted to put it somewhere, I'd just put it there. So the early thing I did for it was with Chad Bowers. Oh yeah. When they changed Mother to Quasi, I interviewed him. Because the very last thing I had in print in Sidewalk was an interview with Chad about Mother, like, oh, starting. Okay. So yeah, I just started Speedway as like a side project place to put other things. Named okay. after the Morrissey song that Heath Kirchart skates to in Minefield. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, but I, I figured, yeah. Yeah, because Minefield's my favorite video. And back then was pretty into Morrissey. Definitely not very into Morrissey anymore. Well, yeah, right, <laughs> like, right now it's uh, difficult <laughs> to see. Yeah. unfortunately experienced with him. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was just a place to like put other things. I interviewed Dick Rizzo and Josh Wilson for it over email. I was pretty stoked on that. Did a thing with Josh Stewart about like life after Static 4 for it. Mm -hmm. And then the Greg thing, that came out the summer after I'd just finished my second year of university. And that felt like the first sort of time where I'd applied what I'd learned studying to trying to write about skateboarding, which is why it's a long, long form story yeah. rather than being Q&A or anything like that. And Greg's also like getting to connect with Greg is really meaningful to me because... Yeah. Everything I like as a skateboarder is kind of, he's had a hand in. Like, the first video I ever saw was the DC video. Greg made it. Like, Minefield's Mind my Fields. favorite skate video. Greg made it. The Dylan solo Gravis part. Yeah. Like, Dylan's one of my favorite skateboarders. That part had, like, a huge influence on me. So, like, through various things, like, a lot of things I like the most in skateboarding are either something directly that Greg has made or something that has come about as a tangent of something that Greg has made. Yeah. So his whole career, I just really wanted to talk to him about it. And I was really, really stoked how much he opened up throughout that. Like he talked yeah. about his early years. He talked about making Minefield in like so much detail. He talked about like working on the Gravis part with Dylan, which was really, really touching. And I was really humbled that he like spoke so candidly about that. Because, you know, it's so tragic that Dylan passed away and they mm -hmm. were such good friends. So getting to, you know, paint a portrait of the time that they spent together was, like, quite special. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Greg was, like, stoked on the... It was around the time when 96 Dreams, 2000 Memories, his photo book on Dill came out. Right, yeah. So it kind of covered his career from the start until that point. Yeah, that was a great interview. And uh, as you said, I liked that it was not a Q&A. It was, like, more of a... I don't even know how to describe it. It was just, like, a, a long article, long but with lots of quotes from your conversation with him. Yeah, more sort of essay-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, that was the first time I feel like I'd like applied what I'd learned about journalism through studying into like a skateboarding context. And that's kind of where I wanted to go with skate writing to a degree. But yeah, that interview, I'm really, really stoked on. It's funny, like I, <laughs> even though I haven't updated it in so long and it's just so like, it can just like exist with that Greg Hunt interview yeah, yeah, alongside yeah. the other little bits I did here and there too. But um no, Greg's great. He's a very immensely talented yeah. skateboarder. It goes oh, without sure. saying, filmmaker. And he's just like a really kind and wonderful person. Like the fact that he like spared me with as much time as he did when I was at like a point where I had like a little bit of work under my belt, but like I, he had no reason to give me as much time that he did. And it was really thoughtful of him that he did. And yeah, he was yeah, yeah. Stoked on the article as well. So yeah.
Do you think you'll do something with that in the future? Are you keeping Come that back. like as a side project for the future? Or? I think for a long time, it was like nice to have it there as somewhere to put like ideas that I didn't, as I said, have anywhere else for. Sure. But now I'm at the point where... I have like enough people that I work for that <laughs> somewhere kind you of have enough places to ideas, share your like, work. Have a home. So I don't know. It's just there. Like maybe I don't know if I will. It's like nice as a little like capsule of a bunch of stuff I did in like the year leading up to going to university that I all when I was getting a grasp of like reaching out off my own back to interview people and yeah. Yeah, but the Greg thing was kind of like, almost like it like came to a finale with the Greg thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, yeah. I'm still at that interview. It still seems to get like visited every so often, and it's nice that it's there for sure. And then I like reconnected with him semi recent. Well, I've like stayed in touch with him here and there since then. Like he, all the stuff for Abe's favorite spot on the green bench came from like Greg's archives from doing the DC video. Like he didn't film all of it. Strobeck filmed some of it, and yeah, other yeah. people filmed some of it. But everything from the DC era came out of like Greg's archive of tapes from there mm -hmm. so i've like stayed in touch with them since and we did a five favorite parts for quarter snacks right yes earlier this year i think that was the first five favorite parts this year which was really cool because as i mentioned everything greg's made had such a big influence on me and i hold it in such high regard so giving him the space to like talk about his things influences. that impacted him heavily was was really cool and that was a really yeah. fun one like he talked about diadec and memory screen and i'm like a big alien workshop fan so that was fun to talk about for sure so yeah, let's talk a bit about Closer. I mean, we, we did talk a little bit about it, but uh, I'd like to ask you a bit more about it. Yeah, sure. So Closer started about a year ago. I just had Jamie on the podcast not that long ago. And so he told me about like the genesis of the whole project and everything. And so you've been involved on every issue since the launch. Your first interview for Closer was with uh, Louis Lopez. Yeah. Then you did a bunch of other ones with uh, Spanky. And the latest one, I think you interviewed uh, Silas, right? For the Wild Rides yeah. thing. Louie was issue one, Spanky was issue two, which was about his role as art director at Baker whilst juggling being pro and fatherhood. That mm -hmm. was fun. And then all the photos, all the imagery throughout it was just Spanky's artwork. Like he had the cover of the mag and then he had a closer interview with just his artwork, which was cool. Like I got to, I'm not involved in the art direction or anything, but with the Spanky thing, how I approached that interview was I had the interview for Spanky and then mm -hmm. I had questions about producing graphics for other people on Baker that I used as a way to talk about the various roles of being an art director. And the way I pictured it was the additional commentary of him talking about, say, making a graphic for Reynolds would sit on a page opposite the main Q&A interview. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the like headline of the interview was character witness. There's all these little characters that Spanky's drawn throughout the interview. And it's like his take on people like Reynolds and people like Sammy Backer, what he, yeah. like his relationship with them, which is also a way to explore his role in making graphics for them. So that was issue two. Issue mm -hmm. three was Nellie Morville, which I was really stoked. Oh yeah, about yeah. Nellie's part in the first limousine video. Yeah, was, like, stand she's out sick. Yeah, favorite. And I don't think she'd had like a an inverted commas big proper interview until that yeah. point. So I was stoked that I kind of got to do the possibly first one there. Yeah, yeah. In fact, no, I think she said that was her first interview, so that was cool. cool. And then yeah, Silas and War Rides was issue four, which came about very last minute and it was very fun. 
We'll talk about like you developing more and more the digital side of Closer. But um, since we've been talking, like we talked about all the different things you've been involved with. And most of those things have been digital. But as you said, I think uh, the beginning of um, Sidewalk was uh, print. And now you're coming back to print with Closer and going on this digital side of it more also. But yeah, it must have been a trip too to see your work printed again. And especially on such a cool magazine with all these people. Like, uh, yeah, how have you enjoyed enjoyed um, seeing your work in print and like what's been your best experience or best memory from this last year working with the whole crew um getting the first issue of the mag and flicking it open and like my name being on the masthead stands out just because i didn't expect that i thought that you know i'd have a byline on the article i didn't expect to get like a accolade or like a yeah. mark on the masthead like that especially next to like i've said this a bunch of times already but especially next to like jamie eric me that doesn't look right <laughs> <laughs> i kind of missed this earlier but like jamie's era of trans world especially when Mackenzie was like the main writer that was also like a big early influence like mm -hmm. i think the, what i molded my approach to interviewing people off early on was a mix of Mackenzie eisenhower chops with chromeball and ben with the way he went around stuff so those three were really like how i approached interviews as okay this is how you interview a skateboarder yeah so then to like work with jamie on his next thing is like dream come true so that was really cool and a lot of what i do is digital but i really value print so being involved in a magazine like closer is pretty profound like i love the way the magazine looks this isn't a very unbiased opinion because i'm involved but i don't have any say over the visual side of it but yeah i think sammy's a, sammy spiteri he's a great art director and it just it looks how a magazine that i would want to work for in print looks mm. that might sound kind of stupid but i don't know how else to say it no no i understand I have some limited graphic design capabilities. I've made a couple of publications in the past, just one-offs. But if I was a competent graphic designer that could make a print publication, that is exactly how I would want it to look. Yeah. So being able to write and just know that however it gets sent in and it's going to look so good. Mm. Visually, I think it looks really sick and it does such a good job of capturing... You know, like Eric's stuff, the very retrospective chrome ball stuff, coupled with some of the more, if you would, contemporary skateboarding mm -hmm. stuff that... I think Jamie said it on his, but I think that's kind of like my role there. I do the stuff that's a bit more recent-ish. Yeah. But I just love the way it looks. And it's nice. I talk to Jamie fairly regularly, and it's cool that he's so open. Like, I feel bad for him that he has to now put up with my bombardment of ideas for things. But it's really cool <laughs> that he's so trusting with me. Mm from hit the ground running with the Louis thing. I was like, okay, here's the print interview. And then I was like, here's a little thing about him at Tompkins skating Abe's bench that is an excerpt from the interview that can follow it up. Mm. I was like, oh, we can put a narrated version of his Days of Grace part online because he talks about working on video parts throughout the thing. So I like having like different avenues for essentially the same thing or like a package of the same thing and doing stuff yeah. with Closer works really well with that. It's kind of like that with Quarter Snacks. Like I said, there's always favorite spot usually runs in tandem with a long form interview with that person. Mm -hmm. And then what I've been doing with Close is kind of an extension of that where it's okay the interview's in print so obviously the mag needs to get highlighted and you want to highlight that interview but 
you know, it's not a cheap magazine. I think it's £17 an issue in mm. England. I don't know how much it is in the States per issue. So, you know, like, you want to do something which highlights that interview and that thing, but you don't want to just put it online because then you've kind of shortchanged someone out of the article that they've... Yeah. Out of one of the reasons they've paid for that magazine. Sure. So the way I approach the stuff with Closer as an extension of the print is to take a chunk of the interview and repackage it as something that is sort of unique in its own thing so then that can live online as something that spotlights the new issue that's out and a story that's in it but without giving the entire story away but also mm. without feeling like you've teased someone so yeah it's a difficult balance but um yeah so that's kind of where i've been going with making some of the online side of stuff to backtrack to your question you asked what the best experience was yeah um, yeah just like being involved like it's really flattering that jamie's so trusting with me and open to my ideas for stuff for instance the one with silas that's in the most recent yeah. issue i wanted to ask you about that yeah that came about because so I, the interview that was supposed to be an issue four, we bumped back to issue five. So Jamie could have more time to shoot photos for it with the person. Okay. And then I was like, oh, you know, he didn't want me to miss having something in an issue because I've been in every issue. Mm -hmm. So he just sent me a spread of every single photo that was going to go in the photo section of the next mag. And uh, there was a photo of Aaron Harrington skating a bump to bar and a photo mm -hmm. of Silas skating a war ride side by side. And I was like, oh, bump to bars. That's Aaron's thing. War rides. That's Silas's thing. Yeah. And so straight away, I was like, I'll interview Aaron Harrington about bump to bars. That'll be fun. And then really early into doing it, I ended up finding out that my friend Andrew Morell had also interviewed Aaron basically about bump to bars amongst other things. Okay. So I was like, I don't want to just accidentally bite a story that you've already done. Yeah, yeah. So I said to Jamie, I was like, this idea has already been done. And him and Andrew had been wanting to get in touch to have something. So I was like, this idea has already been done. Save it for a future issue. And it's already covered by someone else. Mm -hmm. I'll do Silas on war rides instead. And this was like a week before the deadline for the Oh, uh, okay. Very last minute, yeah. Yeah, and it was meant to be two pages. I was like, I'll interview Silas about war rides instead. And then across the course of doing it, I was like trying to get the word count down to what I know would fit across a double page spread. And <laughs> I text Jamie and I was like, give us another spread, go on. <laughs> and he was like, oh, if you can find the right photos to pad it out, I'll give you another spread. And then I found a couple of photos of him skating this certain bank to wall. How many pages is it in total? Was it four, six? I don't remember. It was two double page spreads, so four pages. Okay. But that's what I mean, like, Jamie has to put up with me being like, here's the idea. And then at the last minute, I'll be like, go on, give us another two pages. It'll be worth it. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, from yeah. there, it's like, all right, here's an online thing to accompany it or whatnot. But he's very accommodating for whatever ideas I throw at him. And I'm really appreciative of that for sure. And it's, yeah. it's nice, like, you know, something that starts from scratch, having that input in it and figuring out sort of how to go about the print and online side of things so for instance the silas thing the article format is called topography and it's silas yeah. talking about war rides so the idea is there it's it's similar I'm not trying to like bite myself with favorite spot but i was like oh you can get a skater talking about a certain type of war rides is an interesting one because it's like trick and terrain in one mm. so yeah it intends to be the start of a format that we can return to in later issues and in in the next issue there's an interview with mason silver about music in skate videos and that is also intended to be the start of a type of article that we can return to in later issues oh, too. So it's nice. been cool getting to put things forward as being like, here's an idea for a story that can be adapted for later issues if someone else fits that mold of an article.
So yeah, so you just said that Jamie basically uh, is very um, open to all the ideas you kind of throw at him. And like, for example, for the first piece, did he approach you and did he say, I want you to go interview Louis? Or was it kind of the other way around where you're like, oh, maybe we should do something with Louis? And like, how much does he kind of, um, well, point you in directions of things to do or not? And uh, how does this relationship work kind of? Are you very, very free to do whatever you want? Or is it more a bit of a exchange between the two of you? Of, uh, what you're gonna do yeah it's it's weird it's sort of assignment based but it's fallen very well in that it's also been people i'm in would want to interview anyway so when yeah, the first sure. issue came out i know he wanted louis to be one of the main features in it so i guess you know maybe it goes back to the thing of me being a little bit younger than the other people involved like oh you're the good fit to interview louis also yeah. eric had already interviewed louis for chrome ball so it made more sense for i guess me to talk to him sure. so with the first issue he came to me and was like I'm going to have Louis Lopez in the first issue. You can take the reins on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there wasn't any, like, you need to talk to him about this, this, and this. I guess he had an idea of how I'd go with it. So I had a lot of freedom with however I wanted to go about that. I probably sent him, you know, a paragraph of, like, here's what I want the story to cover. Does that work for you? And yeah. With Spanky in the second issue, I think he'd literally just said as much as, I want to do an interview with Spanky that focuses on his role at Baker. And then I came up with the idea I had for it, which was a general interview with all this extra commentary about, well, that and this additional commentary that ran through it. Right. Nelly for issue three, Jamie's known her since she was super young because of San Clemente. Mm -hmm. And I was so hyped on the limousine video. As soon as he mentioned we could do something with Nelly, I was like, yep, sold. (laughs) (laughs) And then the, the Silas and War Rides one that's in the latest issue and then a couple of things that are coming out in future issues have been more entirely my idea of saying here's a skater here's the format of the story what do you think and Mm. he's been down so yeah it's like it's a it's a good mix i guess what you could loosely call assignments in jamie might say oh i'm thinking about doing this with this person and then from there i kind of get to do whatever i want with it Mm -hmm. that's not saying like you know he wouldn't ever give me a direction for something or say do this or whatnot it's just as i said he can literally just like mention someone and i'll be like Ping, cool, yep, idea for it. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like that quick and clever. It's just like, I don't know, it's, we're kind of on the same page, I guess, a little bit. Right. Because yeah. the skaters that he says he'll want to do something with, that he'll mention to me, I guess he knows that it's like, oh, Farron's probably got an interest in this person. Sure. So it makes sense to put it to him, mm-hmm. you know. And like much the same way it makes sense that, you know, Eric interviews Kalis or Brian Lottie in the most recent one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. more so, legends yeah, it's, it's, kind of. It's pretty balanced. I guess those three issues have been him saying, here's who I want to do something with and me coming up with an interview for him and then some future, the Silas thing in the most recent issue and some future stuff has been me putting forward an idea of an interview format that works for these people well initially but could maybe be become a recurring feature down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is cool. It's nice to have input in that way. But also things that anyone else who might contribute to the mag could do. Like, it's not my feature. It's like, oh, if you want to talk to like the topography feature with Silas about wall rides, if someone else has another idea of another skate or another type of thing like that that works, then, you know, by all means, jump on it. Like, yeah. I'm just happy that there's like this feature that exists. Absolutely. This format, sorry. So what about like the digital side of Closer? Because uh, Jamie told me that he wants to develop that in the future. But since it's only been a year that Closer started, issue four was just released a few weeks ago. But there hasn't been much digital content yet with Closer. But uh... Yeah, so like, like Jamie said when he was on the podcast, most of the stuff that I've put out has been like a narrated 
video part. So Louis narrated his Days of Grace part, and that was the audio from his print interview. Nelly narrated a limousine paymaster part, and that was an excerpt from her print interview. So it's a way to like point back to the issue that's currently out and spotlight it without giving the whole interview away, but still putting something out there. Mm-hmm. And then with Silas in issue four, the piece about war rides, I did that as a video interview. And I've then put together a video version of that interview, which again, it isn't the whole interview, but it's still, I think it feels pretty succinct. It doesn't feel like you've been shortchanged. But then if you picked up the print issue afterwards, there's still more to dig into. And that's Silas talking about his relationship with war rides. So that's kind of the, the way I want to go with some of the print and digital crossover stuff is to have an interesting online video piece that reflects part of what's in the print issue without giving the whole piece away but still stands as its own thing that's like interesting. Mm. So Silas talking about war rides is a version of that. And then in issue five, there's this piece with Mason talking about music in skate videos. And the interview is super long to do like a full video version of it would be like 45 minutes long. So I've like cut it down to a few selects that feels like a nice succinct thing to watch online. Mm. And then you could pick up the print interview and enjoy even more of it. ask you also a little bit about GQ. You did a couple pieces with them recently. Of course, you did the one on Alexis Sablon's new shoe for Converse. You were at the event at the Guggenheim Museum, which was like a month ago or maybe a month and a half or something. You also did something on Strobeck and Taishan about their like uh, relationship. And those are the two pieces I know that you did with GQ. So uh, yeah, I was wondering like, how do you approach doing a piece with them? Because obviously all the other work you've been doing is for skate media. So when you're talking about skateboarding, like we're doing right now, we speak the same language. We all have the same references, the same culture. But obviously if you're addressing GQ's audience, which is mainly non-skateboarders, you need to kind of vulgarize or make it more accessible. And so, yeah, I was just wondering like, how, how do you approach these articles and how much do they kind of uh, ask you to make this content more accessible since their audience is not skateboarders basically well i was really fortunate with the gq thing that a guy called noah johnson is gq's global style director and he skates oh yeah and he's written a bunch of pieces for gq that are relative to skating he did like profile on jason dill he's interviewed alexis previously he's done a story on he's really good story on palace oh nice about them being like marketing geniuses basically like the brilliance of how ridiculous their market is Mm -hmm. so like noah skates and he's done skate based stuff for gq okay so when he approached me about that story one of the first things he said was he was like write it like you're writing it for a skateboarder that is understandable to someone who doesn't skate he was like you don't need to dumb it down like you don't need to explain what a kickflip is for instance Mm. and the way he equated it which i thought was really good is that skaters sometimes get like bogged down in like explaining what we do Mm. or thinking it's maybe like like you have to explain it but the way he kind of framed it to me was like someone writing a story about basketball wouldn't explain what a dunk is yeah just say a dunk and take it as a given that people know what it is that is Mm -hmm. like a dunk or like a layup you know Mm. like when the terminology is just put in the context of the article it's in you don't necessarily need to explain what it is because the reader will just take it as a given it's like okay well if i don't know what that thing is it's just part of the terminology of what's being discussed yeah yeah so in that story for instance i talked about tyshawn nolly kick flipping into the courthouse drop i didn't have to explain what a nolly kick yeah, yeah yeah so it was really good in that respect like i didn't have to over explain or 
yeah, I, it, it had to be understandable to an audience that doesn't skate, but I didn't have to over-explain. And also I had a really small word count on it, so I didn't have the room to, but mm-hmm. that was cool. That was quite like a, yeah, him framing it with like the basketball analogy was cool. Like I'd never thought of it in such simple terms that, yeah, you know, if I'm reading a story on something that I don't know as anywhere near as well as skateboard. And if there's like a piece of language that's specific to that, it's not often that that gets explained yeah. in the same way that I think skateboarding can be quite like guilty of over explaining itself when it's for a non-skate audience so no it was really good and that was a really good article to work on it was really cool going back and forth with Noah on quite like a granular detail throughout it Mm -hmm. I had a week to write it which was quite crazy oh yeah (laughs) and what about the Alexis Sablone thing Uh, did you do the interview with her before the whole launch and everything I I assume so yeah the Alexis thing was crazy because the piece with Tyshawn and Bill, two or three days after it came out in print, which I was like so hyped to see yeah. that in print. It was funny, actually. I went to the skate park one morning and went in the like shop near the skate park and they had just the latest issue of GQ. And I was like, oh shit, it's out. So I like, grabbed a coffee and then uh, sat down on the bench at the park and like flicked it open. And that I was must like, be such a good feeling. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and then, like, a couple of my friends would be like, uh, "Why have you got an issue of GQ?" And I just like turn it around, and they'd be like <laughs> really hyped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You hadn't told anybody about about doing that piece? No. Yeah. No. I'd not. I don't think I'd like mentioned it to anyone other than like my fiance because we live together. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it was like a bit fun surprise. But yeah. Two or three days after the GQ issue came out with the Tyshawn and Bill story, I got an invite to the Converse event at the Guggenheim for Alexis's shoe. Yeah. So I got in touch with Noah again because I was really surprised. I was like, why have I been contacted (laughs) about... Not in like a weird way. I was just so shocked that I'd got an invite to it. Mm. So I contacted Noah. I was like, oh, is this anything to do with you or are you wanting to cover it and he was like oh i'm down for you to cover it so i ended up going out for that and interviewed alexis before the event started which was cool i think i was like the only person that got that much sort of one-on-one time with her cool that was really sick that was super cool i just spent five days in new york skated every single day so you interviewed her over there in new york right before the event yeah we were literally like sat in the cafe the guggenheim before the event like properly like kicked off okay i thought you might have done it like a weeks before over the phone or something no i went out for it skated every day up until that point hung out with like coaster from quarter snack spencer from village psychic oh yeah I stayed at my friend christian's for a few nights christian kerr who writes about skating oh, yeah, too yeah, yeah. just had like a really <laughs> great time it was just like a work trip that was like also super fun super fun and then interviewed Alexis the day of that event and then the day after that I flew home transcribed the interview on the flight home worked on the story for a little bit after I got back so right no it was cool it was just really like surprising that those two stories came in such short succession after one another I was really stoked that Noah hit me up for the Tyshawn and Bill thing because I'd read his stuff for a few years like I said the story he did on Jason Dill is really good yeah the story he did about Palace is really good Yeah, I really like his approach to writing. Obviously, you know, he's writing for GQ. It's for a non-skate audience, but he is really good at writing about skateboarding in a way that is interesting to a non-skateboarder, but isn't alienating to a skateboarder at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I enjoyed his work so much. You know, I think the very first piece of his I read was the GQ one on Dill. 
mm-hmm. and you know i didn't know his name and i was like i think i remember thinking either this guy you know skates and is a really good journalist or he's someone who doesn't skate who has done the most incredible yeah. research, <laughs> research and, like, yeah. an amazing tone of voice and then obviously it turned out he does skate yeah 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 so yeah after like having read his work for a few years i was really stoked he asked me to cover the Tyshawn and Bill thing for sure and then the Alexis thing come in so immediately afterwards was like a very big surprise and also cool and did you actually do other pieces for um, non-skate media throughout these years of working as a journalist like uh, yeah have you done something else than GQ or I've done little bits here and there when I was at university I made a documentary about They Live you know the John Carpenter 80s film with Roddy Piper yeah okay okay it's like a cult classic 80s b-movie So I made a documentary about that as one of my final pieces of coursework and that got picked up by Rough Trade Books. So they put it out because they'd done a book about the film at the same time, mm-hmm. which is how I decided, oh, I'll do this little documentary piece on it. And then there's a local brewery in Leeds called Northern Monk. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they've expanded beyond Leeds, but they're, ba- they're Leeds-based. I helped them sort of set up their in-house magazine called The Scribe and did a story on the founders of the brewery for that. And then another piece about a local cinema called the High Park Picture House. It's been closed for reconstruction for the past couple of years, but it's reopening soon. Okay. So that was a story on that cinema and its history, basically. And then I guess like off the back of that, I've ended up doing some skate stuff with that cinema. I did a screening of the first five favorite spot episodes. Oh, nice. As part of their like offsite program whilst they've been closed. And I'm like just got talking to them about doing some more stuff in the coming year when the cinema reopens. Cool. So yeah, like a couple of bits, but it's funny. Like it's one of those things where I feel like it's like a trope that, you know, like skating doesn't pay the bills. And I always have wanted to like look beyond skating for other things. And I've always meant to, but it's been a consistent thing. That's like the most consistent work is skateboarding based. Mm. And I guess the way that I came to like reckon with it after a certain point of feeling like I should explore further than writing about skateboarding is that any writer probably wants to cover, you know, culture, music, film, television, politics and stuff that's just like writing across the board whereas with skateboarding there's less people writing about it and i've kind of carved a bit of a niche i guess for lack of a better way to put it so it's just an avenue that's always there so i just kind of end up it snowballs end up doing more and more skate stuff so like i would like to do some non-skate stuff and i'm really stoked that i've been able to do skate stuff for something like gq that isn't a skateboard publication Yeah. Yeah, yeah so That's a very happy medium of doing skateboarding stuff in a non-skate context or writing in a not strictly skate context. And so about like being a journalist and a writer in general, I had just a couple of questions I wanted to ask you before we start uh, yeah, sure. wrapping this up. But um, yeah, I was wondering like what would be like one of your favorite things to do as a writer or a journalist? Like um, obviously you do a lot of interviews and so you do research prior to that and you edit, you do a bunch of things. Like what would you say is your favorite part of the process of working on a piece, whether it's an interview for Closer, one of the spot series for Quarter Snacks or working for GQ, for example? Like, what's one of your favorite things to do? I think just um, just getting to do interviews in general, it's really humbling and really like a trip to get to connect with people that I really admire, whether they're skaters or filmers, photographers, just getting to have conversations with people I've like watched from, you know, afar, essentially. Right. And I've either been influenced by or just really enjoy what they make. Just that overall is really, really cool, mm, <laughs> yeah. how to put it. And then as far as like the actual sort of work side of it, 
editing the favorite spot stuff is very fun that's mm. really enjoyable yeah I, I really like working on that series and as i said like it takes quite a while until to the point where i'm actually like looking at a timeline editing it and by that point it kind of falls into place very naturally so that's really fun mm. With doing like so much video based stuff over the past year or so and almost for a minute I was like felt like I was writing less and then doing some of the more like long form stuff for GQ that's been fun that's been enjoyable as far as just getting a bit of a different angle on how to approach skate stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. And so how much time would you say that you usually, I guess it depends on the piece you're working on, but um, for example, if you're doing like a long kind of deep dive interview with, um, let's say the Greg Hunt interview or interviewing Ave or people like that, you know, people with a rich history in skateboarding, how much time do you usually dedicate to research prior to doing the interview? Is it like a few days or is it even weeks in advance? Like, for example, if it's a pro skater, do you try to go through their entire, all the interviews they might have done, like the video parts and everything? Do you try to be super thorough about your research or do you try to not go too deep in it otherwise you overanalyze kind of uh you know what's your process with that i try and put a lot of research into stuff i think as i said earlier reading chrome ball when i was younger i still have always thought that eric's way of interviewing skaters is like all right that's how you go about it so mm. i try and be very thorough usually it's quite chronological that's something i've actually tried to get out of the habit of a little bit just in being a bit less structured with stuff mm. but for the most part even if it's a story that doesn't cover everything someone's done i try and look at everything they've done i read as many other interviews they've had out usually eric's <laughs> for yeah. sure um <laughs> tim from bob shirt as well heck ride do oh, yeah. great interviews He's been doing interviews with like a bunch of sort of more like contemporary skaters yep. that I feel kind of fits like the chrome ball mold of interviewing someone too. So yeah, I try and I watch everything someone's put out. I try and read as much as has been put out. And then in the process of doing that, questions come to mind or try and sort of like fill in the blanks of here and there. For instance, with the Ave interview for Quarter Snacks, outside of the Green Bench stuff we talked about, I kind of approached that as like wanting to do the like sequel to Eric's interview because mm-hmm. that covered a certain point. So I just wanted to pick up where he left off, cover some of the same things he'd covered retrospectively. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for the most part, it's looking at just someone's entire body of work, really. Mm. Sometimes speaking to people that they know on a personal level, that's something that's really handy with the favorite spot stuff is talking to the people who have filmed the person skating it. For sure. It always gives... Because, you know, someone filming a skater has a different perception of that skater than that skater has of themselves. Of course. So that's cool. And sometimes that works its way into the favorite spot stuff. Like Paul Young was in Dick Rizzo's episode. Right. My photographer friend, Andrew Peters, was in Andrew Allen's episode because he'd shot with him a bunch at LA High. So, yeah, trying to talk to people that are connected to the person helps. Mm. Usually friends as well, if they've interviewed someone before. If I'm interviewing someone Eric's interviewed before, I'd be like, anything that, you know, you wish you could have asked at the time or anything that you've thought about them since. It's always good to talk to someone who already has a bearing on what that person is like and a gauge of how they're going to respond. So, yeah, just trying to be as thorough as possible before it comes to it because you know this person's giving you their time like you know their jobs to be a pro skateboarder and part of that job is essentially you know is having a presence but they're still giving you 
I'm still a stranger that they're giving their time to. Yeah. And often, a lot of the time, everyone I talk to is a skater that I'm a really big fan of, so I appreciate being given that time. So I obviously want to be clued up and interested in what they're doing, what they've done, which I often am. So, yeah, yeah I just feel it's important to do the diligence. And sure. whatever that person's story is, it's important to add something new to it and give them the chance to add to it themselves. And so, obviously, you, you skate a lot, and uh, that's, I think, uh, very important for you to keep that enthusiasm and this energy about skateboarding because you're actually skating a lot yourself. I was just wondering, like, what do you do to keep motivated to write and to work around skating? And, of course, I guess skating, the act of skating itself must feed your, like, energy and motivation to keep doing all this work. But uh, do you do also other stuff outside of skating? Do you find, like, uh, inspiration and motivation from other things that you do? that you see do you go see movies in the theater do you go see exhibitions where do you find like inspiration and motivation basically in skating and outside of skating yeah i mean in skating i just watching skate videos reading interviews like skating a lot and then writing about skating they feed into each other very much i get excited to go skate because of whatever i've been working on and going out skating regularly keeps me hyped on whatever it is that i am working on so they're kind of two sides of the same coin mm. like i can get if i have a day where i've interviewed a skater i really like and i'm excited about it that gets me as excited to go skateboarding as watching any like skate video does yeah basically. Sure. so they're very much like one in the same they go hand in hand yeah yeah outside of skateboarding like i'm interested in graphic design and movies and i feel like i'm well versed in either culture <laughs> enough to like write about them but i have a lot of interest in those two things which sort of feeds back into skating i think especially with some of the interests i have in aspects of skating like looking at graphic design outside of skateboarding is like a general thing that i find interesting but yeah just like little little things here and there like feed their way in and around i would say but yeah god like i am also pretty guilty of being very like <laughs> consumed by skating <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure at the same time do you sometimes get burnt out of skating like you just mentioned earlier that you were for example you had this week of working on one piece and also the gq thing on tyshawn mm -hmm. and bill and so i guess that's a lot of stress and everything and like do you sometimes get a little bit burnt out on not just work itself but like uh, on skating where you're kind of fed up with it or do you manage to maintain a good uh, energy about it Honestly, I never get burnt on skating. It only feels more valuable and important to me the older I get, especially as I get to do or have gotten to do all these things that I never expected I'd get to do. And mm. the really incredible opportunities that I can't really believe still happen. So, you know, I might get pretty fried from looking at a screen, but that doesn't mean I'm burnt on skating necessarily. Mm-hmm. That said, if I'm editing skate footage all day for some video piece, I like <laughs> my way of switching off from work at the end of day isn't watching, watching a skate video, skate, yeah. watch <laughs> skate video came yeah. out that day. But I'm never in a position where I'm like, oh, I'm like burnt on this or mm. that or sick of looking at it. I'm just very, you know, thankful for what I get to yeah. do as a job. And, you know, the thing I do the most outside of my job is go skating. So there's a good release there. Like I'm not just at a desk all the time working. I'm out skating, doing yeah. something physical. And I think that with like anything that's creative, whether it's writing, photography, design, film, whatever you're like, discipline is the time that you're not doing something is valuable 
useful because you get ideas for things like when you step away from them. Like, yeah. like you can be trying to figure out how to phrase a sentence or work something out and you get nowhere trying to do it over and over and then you take an hour away from like trying to do that thing and you go wash the dishes or something and it like occurs to you how to do it. So yeah, I'm quite guilty for getting like sucked into the rabbit hole of like whatever is the most pressing thing I need to work on and like trying to solve say I get to a point in it where I can't get any further than it, I'll get very much like, I want to get this bit done. But then at the same time, like all of those things seem to occur kind of naturally when you try and stop doing them. And that's a pretty like regular phenomenon in all of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, no, I never really get burnt on stuff and I just enjoy skating a lot. I go out filming a lot because one of my friends is a filmer. I've been working on videos for like the past three years. So yeah, that's sick. Yeah, I'd like, I definitely need, I go a bit stir crazy when I'm not skating, that's for sure. Even in like winter sucks here, but as long as it's not wet, like I can handle cold happily. All you got to do is layer up. It's wet. <laughs> it's wet that I can't handle. Yeah, it you can't. <laughs> when it's raining and wet outside, it sucks to skate yeah, for sure. Like I think the last two winters, I feel like I've skated more in winter than I had most winters until that point. And that's because I've been working on videos with friends. So there's the motivation there to like get out filming and yeah, also yeah. just like... Be productive. As long as it's dry, I'm happy to be out. And now the weather's nice, so. But yeah, I usually like pace it like a couple days, then another day. But yeah, I try and skate. I don't skate as much as Jamie (laughs) because he skates literally every day. But I try and skate three or four days a week. And that's usually out street skating for the most part. Or maybe like lunch break up at the local park, run up there or morning and then head out from there. And so you live in Leeds, which is very close to where you grew up. Mm -hmm. And all of your work has mostly been in recent times with like American media, like uh, Closer, uh, Quarter Snacks and everything. And you just went to New York for this Alexis Sablon thing. And so I was wondering like if you ever thought about moving to the States or even just staying in the UK, but maybe moving to another city or maybe elsewhere in Europe. I don't know. Did you ever consider moving, changing places or what makes you stay in Leeds? I assume you have a strong scene over there and you have friends that you skate with. You just mentioned filming with them and everything. So I assume that's a big motivation to stay out there. But um, did you ever consider moving out of Leeds? Um, I just like the north of England and like Leeds isn't far from where I grew up but it's a city and it's a bit more exciting than exactly where I did grow up. Mm. So I just I have a lot of good friends here. I like it here. I like the north of England in general. Like I've spent a lot of time in Liverpool and Manchester. I lived in Manchester previously. Okay. I've never like cared for moving to London because it's just (laughs) ridiculously expensive and I have had like friends over the years be like oh doing what you do you should move here you'd like you know you'd make more more opportunities offset yeah there'd be more opportunities and like that's probably true to a degree but at the same time like i don't want that (laughs) Mm. i just don't want to it's never like appeal the idea of like going somewhere like london to like further whatever it is you do has never appealed to me because and i don't mean i don't want to sound big-headed saying this at all but like i've done everything that i've done so far being where i am here well yeah it's like Everything I do is mostly for Quartz Snacks, which is based in New York, and then Closer, which is the other side of the US. Yeah. And I still can communicate with those guys easily and whatnot. Sure. So if I've connected with people that are that far away and have a good working relationship with them, like I don't see without being in London doing, or yeah, of doing that. Yeah, of doing the typical thing of like moving to London, like a lot of people here do when they're in a certain field. Mm-hmm. That being said, if it was like viable, I'd probably move to New York in a heartbeat. I like it there a lot. I like skating there a lot. I've been a few times. Yeah, I have a really fun time when I'm best there. best city in and the world. 
yeah, doing stuff for quarter snacks it would obviously be much easier, and then there would only be like a three hour time difference to Jamie rather than an eight hour oh, yeah. time difference like I have now. And so you've been doing this for yeah almost ten years, I guess, of journalism. Ten years this year. In August, it's ten years since my first thing got published. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. And but during this whole time, of course, there were times where you were not making much money out of all your work and everything. And now you're at a place where you're at least you know living decently. You can pay your bills and have a decent living. So I was wondering, like, if you have any advice to give to aspiring skate journalists or like uh, interviewers such as myself or other listeners that might be listening to this and who would want to, you know also do interviews with uh, all these amazing people you've got to interview just basically what would be your two cents on uh, getting to skate media i'd just say reach out to people like all i kind of did in the first place was reach out to i mean i was very lucky that like ben has done sidewalk for so long and he was fascinatingly in like my local orbit but it's not like i knew him more than knowing who he was and i didn't see him around very often mm -hmm. and then just kind of like eventually reached out and then beyond that just reaching out to other people like emailing coaster at quarter snacks with bits here and there when i was younger you know if i hadn't have done that maybe down the line i wouldn't have ended up doing stuff for him more regularly like same with Jamie when I met Jamie for the first time in New York when I was 21 because Transworld had a photo show on and me and three of my friends went on a skate trip for two weeks and we went to that one evening okay so I think like from that I like would stay in touch with Jamie a little bit like I'd send him stuff here and there be like oh this came out like and Transworld throw it up on like their best of web feed or whatever it was so just reaching out to people is the best thing you can do reaching out to people you're interested in reaching out to people and asking questions reaching out to people that you kind of see it as like if they're more experienced than you or whatever just like ask questions I've had mm. like part of why I wanted to do this podcast was in like I feel weird being someone that talks about what I do because like I said earlier at the point where you asked me to come on you'd have like chops and Burnett yeah and I'm like I don't You don't consider yourself in that category yet, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like still by any means wouldn't. But in the past sort of year, I've had like a few people reach out to me asking questions about how you get into writing about skating or just general advice on stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've like always given advice and like responded. Mm -hmm. So I think just reaching out to people and just asking questions is the best way. Be, you know, enthusiastic and polite. Yeah. And I don't know, it's, I do feel very lucky that I ended up where I am. But I guess like the through line of it was just like reaching out to people and kind of hoping for the best. And I feel like the world is so much smaller now than it was yeah. even just 10 years ago. Like, you know, very 10 true. years ago, it was like, oh, you could email people. And now it's like, well, you can DM someone on Instagram. It's like everything's so just so, so accessible. Short. Yeah. But yeah, just like I think reaching out to people is the best way. And just asking questions, like asking all the things that you want to know how to do, just asking how to do them, basically. Like, I'll happily answer any questions people have about skateboard, media, journalism, writing in general. Like, my email address is on my website. It's pretty yeah. easy to find. I'm more than happy to respond to any mm -hmm. questions. You know, it kind of goes out saying, but having a good work ethic, too. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's something, like, Ben always said to me. It was, like, you know, the thing with, like, Ben giving me opportunities to do stuff, I always kind of delivered on what I said. I wanted to do and I think you know that goes a long way yeah just that and I think like the sooner you start is also really important like 
experience obviously goes a long way both in terms of what people see in you and what you can do yourself you only get better at something the longer you do it so if you have an inkling that you want to like start trying to do something i would just say like jump in as soon as you can whether you know if you're writing about skateboarding like the first stage isn't necessarily reaching out to you know your favorite pro for an interview you can write something about you can start a blog for your local scene and you can yeah yeah exactly something start small local skate stuff you can hit up your local shop and if they have a blog you can see if there's any like opportunities there to do editorial bits for sure Mm. so yeah just like just jumping in in any way you can because it'll only snowball both in terms of what you're capable of doing and you know the sort of output that you're putting out there as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know hopefully people will pick up on that and also you know asking people for feedback i don't think there's anything wrong with that i was really like i said when i went to university i was really fortunate that i had really good lecturers who gave really good feedback on like good criticism on things as well Mm -hmm. so and also like studying isn't the be all and end all but if you're in a place where you feel like you benefit from it i'd say do it i know that's not the most financially wonderful thing in the world because i'm in a load of student debt and loads of other people are in a load of student debt but if you can justify studying and think you would get something from it then it's i think it's definitely worthwhile because i'm worth uh, experiencing yeah yeah i'm glad that i went and studied journalism it was really valuable for like the position i'm in now So you just mentioned that you're still very young. You're only 28. You've accomplished already so much as a skateboarding journalist and writer and interviewer. And it's really impressive. And uh, I was wondering, like, what are your, like, ambitions for the near future? What's kind of left to do on your bucket list? You've done a lot of shit. You're doing a lot of shit right now. But what are things that are on your bucket list? Like either pros you'd love to interview or stuff outside of skateboarding or even outside of journalism. What would you like to do in the next five years, let's say? I think as far as pros I want to interview, I've been very, very fortunate that near enough all of my favorite pro skateboarders I've managed to interview. Mm-hmm. Actually, I always think I've like kind of interviewed all of them and then someone else comes up. The two people that I really want to interview are Jake Johnson and Heath Kirchart. Oh, yeah. If I'd have written a list of like 21 of everyone I ever want to interview, I've, like I said, it, it feels weird saying it, but I've been so lucky to be able to speak to a hell of a lot of those people. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, Jake and Heath Kirchart are uh, high on the list. Met them both briefly. They were both really nice. That was cool. Beyond that, looking forward to doing just more stuff with the Favourite Spot series. There's like so many to go at that I have in mind. And they're not always the quickest things to turn around. Like it's funny that the initial ones all happened within like the space of a year. And then I just did Cyrus last year. And then it was kind of like quiet on making any of them happen. And now there's three or four queued up that are hopefully going to come out within the next sort of six months or so. Nice. Um, So doing more on that. Hopefully taking things further with closer as that continues to expand i'm excited for where that goes both print and online yeah yeah cool it's like a year down now so it's cool to see where it goes from here Mm. i'm always trying to like loop people in with closer as well like basically anyone i know who not know personally or anyone i read who i've like connected with and who i just chat to quite freely whenever they like mention something they're working on i'm always like send it to jamie (laughs) i just keep Mm. sending i just keep telling people to get in touch with jamie (laughs) so um it's be cool to see like hopefully some of those people pop up in the magazine yeah i'd really like to make a book of some sorts of all the work that i am the most proud of i guess over a certain period of time stuff like a bunch of the interviews i've done for quarter snacks which only exist online yeah 
little things like that, but that's a whole like crazy thing to figure out how you'd even package that. But that's always in the back of my mind of making something that's almost like a anthology. Yeah. Where it seems like a little bit big headed, like, here you go, here's my collected works. That feels mm-hmm. a bit weird. <laughs> but it'd be nice to like put something like that together for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then yeah, no, I I can't really think much beyond that. It's like something I realized recently that and this might sound like a bit funny to say, but like the opportunity that I don't know is coming is kind of the one to look forward to. Like yeah. I had no idea, for instance, over a year ago that Jamie was gonna reach out to me about closer and yeah. you know, a year down the line news for that. That's really cool. Like it came so out of the blue that Noah reached out to me to do those GQ stories. That was really cool. So yeah yeah like one thing i think i've realized to look forward to is like the opportunity that you don't know is out there is a cool one to just think of yeah mm. not that i'm like actively thinking of like oh what's going to come next <laughs> but it's no, more of like course. you know when those things do come out of left field like that's really really cool so i wrap up these interviews with the same cheesy question with everyone and that's basically what do you feel is the most valuable lesson you've learned from skateboarding I think it's kind of just like the world is so small <laughs> mm-hmm. like as i was talking about earlier with saying just reach out to people and whatnot like it's crazy that i've been able to like you know going from being like 18 looking at quarter snacks all the time to then doing stuff for quarter snacks as regular as i do now or you know going from reading trans world to then doing stuff for closer like the world's really really small and especially now i guess like like beyond skateboarding the world in general now it's at a point where it's like easy to reach out to anyone you want whether yeah, you know you get yeah. response or not it's like and also skateboarding itself is like a microcosm so mm. there is that aspect to it but yeah just i think the most valuable thing it's taught me is that it is a small world and there's not anything wrong with like having like you know a certain degree of ambition like people that i've been able to speak to and whatnot or just things that have come up like the a thing for quarter snacks started out as a joke like we should talk to him about the bench and then three months later it was happening mm-hmm. just yeah i guess that the world's pretty small and don't be afraid to reach out to people reach out to people in different cities different countries even if it's just a town like you think it's cool what they do or you're interested in what they do or you liked something they did like whenever someone has an interview that i think's real good or i really enjoyed if i know them i like always straight away get in touch and be like that was a great interview and even if i don't know them i'll get in touch and just be like don't know if this is a bit weird coming out of blue but just wanted to say that piece you did with so and so was great so uh, let's wrap it up with the friends questions. We talked about most of these people throughout our chat. So this very first one is from Greg Hunt. That's very flattering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he asked a pretty basic question, but it's an interesting one. And I think I already know the answer. But he said, who was your very first favorite skater? Oh, that's actually a tough one. Because I think like, you know, when you're a kid, your kind of favorite skater is like whatever you're watching in that moment. So yeah. And also in that period where you don't like know that much about skating. So I can't really say who my very first favorite skateboarder was. I feel like at the point where I started to get like more of an idea of what it was that I really like in skateboarding, it would probably be Dylan Reader massively through Greg's grab his mm. part that he did with dylan right. and then like i said earlier about so many things i like being like tangents of things greg's worked on like from dylan i went from backwards to like it went from dylan to like oh found out about like delay than heath and then further back through workshop into like oh photosynthesis is cool blah 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 so it's like it's really like even though that comes like so late into me actually being a skateboarder until being a teenager i I don't feel like I got like fully like absorbed on like a geeky I love everything about this level with skate media until I was like a teenager. Okay. 
Because when I was younger, it was more like, it's like, I feel like my timeline of like watching skate media goes like DC video when I was a kid, blueprint videos when they were about fully flared. And then after fully flared, as skating started to transition from like so many full lens videos to appearing on the internet more, that's when I got like more absorbed into watching it. Mm. But yeah, I would say the point at which I started really like taking a strong interest in a certain type of skating that I really liked. Dylan Reader was probably my favorite skater and he was the catalyst for so many other people that became my favorite skaters because it was like they were tangential to like who he rode for and who he was. All right. So this next one is an audio one. Hey, what's up there, boss? Uh, First time, long time. This is your boy PK. Question for Farron. What's the best New Order song and what's the best New Order deep cut? I'm talking B-sides, live joints, BBC, rarities, etc. Thanks. Uh, that's Patrick from Mostly Skateboarding, right? Yes, Patrick Kigongo, right? Yeah, yeah, Patrick's great. Oh, yeah. shit, that's a hard one off the top of my head. You skated to a New Order song, right? Yeah, that was 2021. My friend Joe Allen made a video called Patonk, and I skated to Perfect Kiss by New Order, which Perfect is Kiss, okay. Low Life's my favourite New Order album, so it's probably something from that. Okay. I think that's actually my favorite New Order song. Yeah, Perfect Kiss by New Order is my favorite New okay. Order song. And I got to skate to it in a part, so that was cool. And then, what did he say? Best Deep Cut. Deep Cut, yeah, like B-sides, yeah. live joints. I'm blanking. There's definitely like a certain live performance that I really like, but it's gone out of my head. I will say this though, right, related to New Order, like Peter Hook's not in New Order anymore, but Peter Hook's book, How Not to Run a Club, about Mm -hmm. the Hacienda is so funny and so good for anyone that's interested in like factory records, stuff like that. How Not to Run a Club is really good. So I'm going to recommend that in place of a deep cut. Okay. It's like between chapters, there's breakdowns of like the Hacienda's worsening finances over the years. That's really funny. Okay. This next one is from Jacob Sawyer. Ah, Jake's the best. So he said, I would ask Farron, at what point or during what interview did he realize he had found a voice or flair for what he was doing? Also, even though he is writing regularly, does he ever experience anything approaching writer's block? Um, as far as like finding a flair, that feels like a weird one to answer because that always feels like a moment of like, oh, I'm good at this or whatever. So I don't know if I can really mm. answer that. I think maybe the reaction to the Ave favorite spot was a moment of like... Like it clicked, kind of? Not like clicked as far as like me acknowledging I'm like good at doing something, but it was more a moment of, holy crap, like this thing's had such a crazy response. Like my phone didn't stop like going for three days after that, yeah. <laughs> after that thing came out. <laughs> I'm and sure. I was already at a point where I'd done quite a bit by that point, but also... I was really stoked at that and also it being Ave and such a fun, wild story that I was I was stoked that I got to tell that story. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really answer the question, but the response to that was a moment of like, pretty humbling moment of being like, wow, like... People are enjoying this. Uh, yeah. This thing's kind of gone off. And what was the second half of that question, sorry? Like experiencing something that approaches writer's block, basically. Not quite. I'll get like, to if I get to a point where I can't like think of anything further to do on a piece i'll kind of just jump on something else Mm. i've always got multiple plates spinning at once (laughs) sure yeah i've always got like multiple plates spinning at once so there's always the thing of like if one story i've like hit a certain point where i don't feel i can go further with it at that moment in time i can just jump onto a different one Mm. or sometimes i'll just like drop it all together and just go (laughs) usually go skate or just do something that's not like i talked about earlier once you hit a point where you can't feel like you can't get any further sometimes it's better to just go do something else Pause. yeah to backtrack a minute actually when i did the gq thing Mm -hmm. 
the amount of time that I turned that story around in, that was quite like an affirming thing of like, oh cool, well if I did something of that scale in that amount of time, then like I know what kind of what's capable that I can do in other periods of time. And that, that made other pieces of work less daunting. So it was like a reminder, it's like, okay, well that can be done in that amount of time. Mm. So maybe that lends more to what, that's not like, you know, affirming that I have a flair for it or whatever. It was more of a moment of assurance. It's like, oh cool, you're capable of producing something like that in such a short amount of time. Then you don't need to stress deadlines and whatnot in the future. Sure in the same way as I maybe did before. And even that was that was only like semi-recent as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're always learning more and getting better at whatever it is you do in different ways, I guess. It's always snowballing. Okay, this one is in two parts. So this is the first part. Hey man, you hope you're all right. Right, so I don't forget, I've got an idea for a question for Farron. So I guess when I did Sidewalk, I kind of gave Farron his first few opportunities for writing. And um, I'm sure he'll remember the first one. So maybe ask him if he can remember what my advice to him was as a budding skate writer when he was doing his first ever interview. If he can remember what I said to him. And following on from that, what advice does he have to anybody listening to this who wants to follow up a sort of similar career trajectory to his? So does he remember my advice firstly? just before he did the Brian Anderson interview, which was the first thing he ever did. And secondly, what advice does he have to give anybody who wants to do something similar to what he's doing? (laughs) Ben. Yep. No, I can't remember exactly what it was, but if it's anything like Ben's usual train of thought with advice to most things in life, it will have been something along the lines of be enthusiastic, be nice, and don't be a dick, (laughs) probably. But whatever it was, I'm sure it's been well practiced by this point and is probably pretty inherent in everything I've done then and since. Because like I said earlier, I owe a lot to Ben and I'm grateful for the opportunity he gave me when I was a kid. And as far as giving advice to anyone like wanting to go down a similar path, I guess we like talked yeah, about we it talked a about this, earlier. Yeah. But yeah, I would echo that. Just be enthusiastic, be keen, interested, do the research, mm. you know, like enjoy things, but take them seriously and treat them with the respect, respect. that they deserve. Yeah. And just reach out to people mm-hmm. when you want to find something out, when you want to know how something works, when you want to get an idea of how to do this or that. Yeah, just reach out to people like... Ask the questions that you want the answers to, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that applies for like figuring out how you end up doing this and whatever you might want to know from an interview. I know that sounds really simple, <laughs> but yeah. like if you just ask what you want to know, usually there's going to be someone else that wants to know that as well or for sure. the person's not been asked it before. So yeah, I would say that. All right, this is the second part uh, from Ben. Actually, I've got another one as well. So Farron, aside from the writing that Farron does, a lot of his current sort of acclaim is based around the video pieces he's done, mainly for Quarter Snacks, but he's done a few for other people as well, where he kind of sources video footage either related to a spot or related to a skater and cuts it all up and then re-edits it into something which kind of goes along with the narrative that he's trying to get out of the person who's he's interviewing. How does he feel about cannibalizing other people's content i guess is that a lauded term it's not meant to sound negative but what does he feel the cultural value of doing that is well the like stuff i do i never do it without the permission of the filmers like all the favorite spot stuff for quarter snacks it's 
supplied by the filmers. Right. And a lot of it is stuff that hasn't been seen before. So I guess the approach I have to it is that it's kind of like a behind the scenes mm. sort of thing that you wouldn't otherwise see. And it's a, it's a story beyond the, the trick or the clip that's committed to the video part. Mm. So, I mean, it feels weird to talk about whatever I do as like, my thing has cultural value or because I would, <laughs> ever, I would hate to say that about anything I do. But if other people see value in it i would say like the value is it's just like a it's a more candid sort of behind the scenes look than what you would get in a skate video and it's trying to tell a story and share a story that wouldn't otherwise be shared and and let that skater possibly also shine in a way that's not just like they're skating it's letting them talk about their relate like with the favorite spots to primarily you know it lets that person talk about their relationship with that spot and Mm. Like with the favorite spot stuff, a lot of it's spots that I've looked at for a long time and been like, God, I wonder what that thing's like to skate. So it, you know, someone might never get to go to another country and skate that spot, but they might be interested by it and they can hear firsthand what it's like to skate it from someone that's like usually suffered at that spot mm. <laughs> for a long time. So I don't know, it's, it's weird to like talk about the cultural value of your own work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just hope there's some fun storytelling to it. It gives people a chance to like tell their stories of things like that and gives people a a look into it that wouldn't be there otherwise, mainly. Yeah. To a degree, it's like the bonus feature on a... Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like the director's cut on a DVD or something, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a really, it's a really weird one to talk about. And I am also very conscious, you know, in doing all the favorite spot stuff that I haven't filmed any of that footage. Like, yeah. that's been filmed by other people. And I'm very fortunate that that gets put into my, you know, hands to shape into something else. I feel weird almost taking any credit for it, even though I do those series. But I guess the way to kind of like, I balance it out in my head is like a graphic designer doesn't create the typeface that they use. They don't mm. necessarily take the photo that they lay out. So that's the sort of similarity I draw to yeah, it. Yeah, you're telling the story. Whilst being very conscious that I have no direct involvement in the creation of that footage, I'm someone right. who just enjoys it and wants to get sort of the, the scoop on whatever the story there is. So I'm very, yeah. I'm very grateful that someone like Paul Young, whose videos I really like, was down for like, yep, I'll send you everything I've filmed of Dick Rizzo at Grant's Tomb. Like, have at it sort of thing. This next one is from Fred from Heckride. Oh, cool. So he said, big fan of Farron. He's one of the few people that inspire me to do skate interviews these days. My question is this. What is the longest audio interview you've had to transcribe? And what's your best technique to get through the hours it takes to transcribe interviews? Keep killing it. The longest interview I've ever done was... I think it was Mark Suchu. I think we were on the phone for like two hours. It was just after Verso came out. I did a piece with him for Slam that covered like everything from there to Verso coming out. And that was cool because there was, I had so much to go out with this. It was already really long. It ran really long, but I had so much to go out that I didn't want the whole thing to be Q&A because I didn't think the momentum carried. So I broke Mm. it into like chapters. So it was like Q&A about a bunch of stuff. And then there was like a long form interjection where it was more like essay-like with couch quotes. And I did that on and off throughout. I think that was the longest interview I've done. That was about two hours. Alternatively to that, when I interviewed Nick, who does Palomino for Quarter Snacks, yeah. me and Nick are really good friends, and that was like being at the virtual pub. So we were just mm-hmm. like on the phone for God knows how long in the middle of summer, chatting for ages. Okay. I don't know what the most words I've transcribed from an interview is. 
Howling on LA High was pretty long. Mm -hmm. And then that got cut down to like 20 minutes. Yeah, I don't know what the most words I've transcribed is, but I reckon it's somewhere in the ballpark of like 15 to 20,000 for one interview. Okay. But as far as the, the approach to getting through it, I think the best way to approach it is one thing that's good is like when you're like writing or making things or whatever, you're constantly like thinking of how you make something. Whereas something like transcribing is really straightforward. Like the only way to do it is to just sit down and get through it. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like transcribing something of like great length can almost be a good little like break from things that take a bit more like thinking, I guess. Sure. It's kind of good sometimes to block out a day where you're like, right, I'm just going to transcribe that day. And then you just spend the whole day transcribing something of length. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get that done and then you've had a break from trying to edit something in a certain way or trying to draft some interview questions together for someone. It's a very straightforward thing. The only way around it is you sit down and transcribe. Mm. So it can kind of be a good moment to sort of like put the brakes on for a second, just like, right. I would say it's the aspect of the job that feels most like a job because you're just like there doing one set Yeah, thing. repetitive task. That being said, it can get to the point where, like, and it's always nice to like hear those conversations back too. And I, I transcribe everything manually. I don't like... Um, use the software of any kind yeah i do it all myself okay a lot of that comes with because like when it's the favorite spot stuff it's the process of transcribing it back that starts to give me an idea of how it's going to get pieced together and i make notes as i'm doing it but um yeah kind of just maybe like block out a day where Mm. you're like i'm just gonna okay that day i'm gonna transcribe and hunker down through it All right, this next one is from uh, your fiance, Ruby. So she said, Since I started dating Farron in 2019, no matter where he's lived, there has always been the same collection of skate videos displayed somewhere in the house. Now they take pride of place over two shelves in our living room. These are his creme de la creme favorites he's been collecting since being <laughs> a kid. And I believe some of them are kind of rare, but my skate knowledge is little to none, so don't hold me to that. My question is, top three he'd save in an emergency out of the bunch and why those ones yeah that's tough i'd take a dc video because it was my first video Mm -hmm. minefield because it's my favorite video then i'd take maybe the gravis dylan dvd because i have a dvd copy of that okay which is like a rarity and as i mentioned a favorite Mm. and then once those are safe i'd like run back in and grab one more (laughs) (laughs) and uh i would grab Patonk by my friend Joe Allen which has parts from like all of my friends so yeah that would be like alright everything's safe I'm gonna go grab one more real quick (laughs) you ever seen that episode of The Simpsons when there's a house burning down and Flanders pushes Homer out the window onto a mattress to try save him and he bounces back off the mattress into the house that would be me with the three that I needed (laughs) to save and then running back into going back to get (laughs) (laughs) okay let's do this one hey Farron this is one of your bosses Jamie Owens I got a question for you. Why don't you like to take old boards on the airplane with you when you travel? You said something on our last trip about being weirded out by dirty old boards or something on the plane. Please elaborate and then get back to work. Take it. No, not quite. So when I was last in New York, I checked out of my hotel and then I had a while for my flight and Jamie's hotel, it was when the Converse Alexa thing was on, Jamie's hotel was near LES Park. So I like took my duffel bag to Jamie's hotel, dumped it there and then we went out skating for the afternoon and then I went back to get my bag before I went to the airport. But I had like a long duffel bag that fits my board in and then I pack around it. 
Okay. So I like had to unpack, take my board apart and then repack. But what I said was I hate bringing a board that I've already skated on a skate trip. So whenever I go on a skate trip, I always pack a fresh board for the start oh. of the trip. Like I don't care what state it comes home in. So it's nothing to do with like a dirty board or anything. I just feel weird like putting a, I don't know what it is. Like I never want to go on a skate trip with a board that's like- Already used. Shit. And not even necessarily already used. It's just, I don't know. It always seems like a good excuse to put a new, new board uh. on something. Most times I go on a skate trip, if I'm already skating a board that's like beat to death, it'll just end up even more whittled. Yeah. And then I'll put a fresh one on as soon as I arrive on a trip. <laughs> so like, yeah, whenever I go on a skate trip, I put a fresh board on pretty much. Okay, okay, interesting. Okay, let's do the next one. Farron, I was wondering how long it took you to track down Anthony Van Englund for the My Favorite Spot segment with the Green Bench. That was so good. Nice work. Uh, I also want to hear the story about when you met Jake Johnson and what he signed on your board. All right, man, keep killing it. Did you recognize the voice? Was that Tim from Bob Shirt? Yes, Tim Anderson. Yeah. Oh, Tim's the best. Tim's great. Yeah. The Ave favorite spot thing, like, just, like I said, it happened straight away. I text Coaster joking that it'd be funny to do it. And then a few months later, it was just like, spoke to so-and-so at Vans, Ave's down. It was like lined up so easy which was a trip that it like just happened so out of the blue like that. Mm. And then the Jake Johnson thing. So as I've said a million times, I'm be massive alien workshop fan. And then when mother started, like I really like Gilbert and Jake yep. and what they were doing. So I have the first three mother pro boards, Tyler Bledsoe's, Gilbert Crockett's and Jake Johnson's. And then there was a Converse demo in Manchester and Jake was on the Converse tour. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to take this board. It'd be cool if Jake signed it, like his first motherboard. Mm. So I took it and after the demo, I was like sheepishly like, hey man, could I get a photo, blah, blah, blah. Would you be down to sign this? And he was down. Like he was like kind of surprised that I had that board. Yeah. Was probably, this was maybe a year into mother being around and he was like hmm what should i write and then he like scribbled his signature and then above it he wrote don't forget about your mom and was like <laughs> it'll make sense soon and he gave me the board back and i was like well, i have no idea what that means and then however further down the line from that it wasn't very long thereafter they changed the name from mother to quasi yeah and i remember like looking across my bedroom at that board and it said don't forget about your mom mm -hmm. and i was like oh that's sick so yeah i have a board wow. jake's first mother board signed by him and with that scribbled on it and then Funnily, when I was in New York last time, I went to Columbus Park one day and there was like Cyrus, Max, a few other people and Jake showed up as well. And then I ended up at this ledge spot that's between Columbus Park and where the courthouse is. It's those two ledges in a row that Cyrus skates in his first line in Paymaster. Oh yeah. And like Jake was there like on the session. I was there with my friend Matthias and like Cyrus was skating. Brian De La Torre was there. Mm -hmm. Jake was there. It was a trip. And most people skating were goofy and I'm regular. So they were at the opposite. They were skating the ledges from the opposite side I was. Okay. And Jake was stood like two meters behind me. And I hadn't really said anything to him yet because I, <laughs> I don't really feel that shy. But in that moment, I felt like mm. a little bit starstruck. And I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll say what's up. And I like turned around and like said, what's up, blah, blah, blah. I got chatting to Jake. He was super, super nice. It was really nice to chat to him. And I mentioned that like we met before briefly. And I mentioned that he signed that board. And he was really amused by it. <laughs> nice. So yeah, I definitely will have told Tim that story because we like geek out over boards all the time and I've interviewed him before. So I'm hyped that he brought that one up. 
Okay, I uh, just have a few last ones. This one's from Tom Brown from Welcome in Leeds. Yeah, Tom's one of the owners. He's lovely. So he said, any interviewees blown away the expectations he had of them pre-interview? Extrovert to introvert, dull as dishwater to king of charisma. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I've interviewed anyone that was like dull by any means. Who's blown me away? I keep harping on about it, but like Ave was a crazy one just because it mm. was quite like a starstruck interview to be doing. I think he's got like a bit of a reputation as seeming like this quite stoic, almost like quite impressive, sort of uh, and intimidating. And he was he was super chatty from like start to finish and just like a good storyteller. So mm -hmm. that was really cool. Cyrus, I always got the impression that he'd be quite quiet, but he was super chatty and like he was real chatty and fun to talk to, mm -hmm. especially when it was about the sombrero stuff. Sometimes doing those favorite spot things almost feels like therapy for the person. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, they've literally suffered on these spots, so makes sense. And then it's all, it's not necessarily like people being more talkative than you expect them to be, but it's nice when people who haven't had many interviews are really talkative or mm. more, yeah, just people when, you know, when you don't know what to expect, you're going to get out of them. And then they end up really talkative. Like Nelly, she hadn't had like a big interview. She was super chatty. Diego Todd hadn't had many interviews when I did a thing with him. He was super chatty. Yeah, I think for the most part, like people I interview, I'd have a gauge on that they're going to be talkative mm -hmm. or if they're... I think if I know someone's not probably not going to be talkative or they're known for not being talkative, like generally, unless you've got like a good angle on it that they're maybe going to be more open about, it's... Right. I don't want to... I never want to pester someone for an interview who's not like that into Not down, yeah, 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 for sure. One thing that does come to mind, like I always thought Alexis was quite quiet. Mm-hmm. And then when I did the interview with her at the Guggenheim, she was super chatty and stoked and everything. Not that I didn't think she would be, but she just... I had an allotted time slot for the interview and it got to the point of where I was basically getting to the end of the time slot. Oh, yeah. But she was just so enthusiastically answering questions that we, like, spilled over a little bit. Okay, nice. And that, yeah, that was really cool. I think, like, given the circumstance of what I was interviewing her for and where we were, that yeah. was one where I was a bit like damn this is crazy and then she was super friendly and like really really talkative so that was great okay two last ones one audio cool. one written one let's see hey there Farron. a lot of your work focuses on the skateboarder's relationship to the skate spot particularly with your favorite spot series have you noticed any shared tendencies between the skaters you've talked to in regards to why they're drawn to certain obstacles and how they approach them oh who was that that's uh cole nowicki Oh, cool. Yeah. Right. Cole's rad. Yeah. Um, I think proximity is kind of one with some of the stuff. For instance, like Gilbert lives in Richmond. So right. Trust is the local plaza type spot. Andrew Allen lived near LA High when he was skating there. Grant's tomb was on a route that Dick Rizzo used to take from New Jersey to New York. Mm. The bench was in the back of Ave's truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess like Cyrus and the Sombrero is one way you have to travel out to. So, But for the most part, I guess there's an aspect of proximity to them. Mm. It's not so much like the shape of the objects or what the spots are or whatever, but one like through line is that I remember once someone made a joke about how all the favorite spots basically start out with people saying how much they like have suffered at those spots. <laughs> <laughs> so that is like a running theme is that they're like Gilbert had nothing but like fond things to say about SunTrust. And I think the same with like Dick Rizzo and Grant's Tomb, but then like Ave and the Bench and Andrew Allen and LA High and Cyrus and the Sombrero, they all talked about how much like they've been punished by those, <laughs> those various things or how much of a saga they'd been. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's there isn't like a direct through line I see between those people and those. The only through line that like stands out to me is that like they're all skaters I really like and they all have a spot that they're notable for. Mm. And I end up skating the same spots a lot and I really like skating the same spots and I really like seeing footage of people skate the same spots. And yeah. that has certainly like lended itself to the episodes of favorite spots that are there. Like those those six that are out already. Sorry, there's another one. Kirsty did one with Yalti Halberg about Yarms oh, as well. Yeah. But this, those ones that I've done, Gilbert, Ave, Rizzo, Max, Andrew Allen and Cyrus, they're all skaters that I really, really like. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny that there's a through line there and that all those skaters I like have a, a spot that's kind of like their thing. Okay, this very last one is from Eric Swisher. Of course, I needed to get a question from him. And he shared three <laughs> questions. So the first question is, with no shame, what's the nerdiest question you want to ask Jake Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Um... <laughs> Every single clip in Minefield, I would I would ask him about without a doubt. That's that's such a good question from Eric. There's a frame. There's like a, a really brief shot of Super 8 in the opening to that part. It's in black and white, and Jake's walking down the street holding his board, and he's wearing a shirt from an autumn skate shop. And that like just that still is stuck in my head for so long. Maybe just like what's the context of that like fleeting mm. moment in the park? Because it always comes back to me. But beyond that, I would just like I'd want to know the detail behind all of it. <laughs> okay, so he said same question, but with Heath Kirchhardt. <laughs> God, Eric knows me so well. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that's a tough one. I nearly got to interview Heath. It was the day after the Made Chapter Two premiere in London, and he was like actually down for a little interview, but then he ended up ill, so he was just like laid up in the hotel all day, so he wasn't around. But um... so that was a few years back, right? Made Chapter Two was what twenty eighteen. Yeah, that, that 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 was actually when I was in my first year at university. It was the Made Chapter Two premiere that weekend in London, and I told Ben I want to interview Spanky because it was like Spanky's comeback part. So they lined up an interview with Spanky, mm. and then. I had university that Friday, but I think the premiere was that Friday. So it was like my first week at university. And I said to one of my lecturers, I was like, I know this doesn't sound very good because we've only just started, but I need to not Take the day I off be in on Friday because I have to go to London to cover a event and interview someone. I think my lecturer was a bit like, you're going to be all right. Mm. <laughs> like you can miss class the first week if that's the case for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Heath was, Heath was at that and I met him really briefly and I was like stoked. He was really nice. I actually have, this is a funny one, I have like a pair of Heath Kirchart America jeans, like signature Heath Kirchart America jeans. Okay, okay. Whenever I wear them, because it's a pair of white pants, people are always like, oh yeah, Heath Kirchart pants. And I'm like, of course, no, yeah. they literally are. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's another one where I could just like unpick everything. I'd want to yeah. like unpick every single Dissect clip all of his from clips. his minefield. Minefield part. Greg told me that he finished minefield super early. And then was just like straight into stay gold. Greg told me he finished oh, yeah. minefield before anyone else did. So I think I'd want to know how early his retirement is like planned to retire from pro skating came into the picture. Mm. Because minefield came out 2009, stay gold was 2010. He had the Easter egg part and then it was like, yep, that's that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say like if he ever wishes he'd have stuck around in the spotlight longer, but probably definitely doesn't. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> but, so. But yeah. That's so funny that Eric came with like those two examples. <laughs> yeah, he knows you well, as you said. Okay, his last question is, we all know your love of minefield and photosynthesis, but what are your thoughts on memory screen? 
Uh, so photosynthesis is rad. Mindfield is definitely, I feel like everyone has like their workshop video. Mindfield is the one that I like yeah, love the most. Me too. It's like my yeah. era of workshop. Photosynthesis is incredible as of a video course, too. Yeah. Memory screen is like, I think at the point where I got really into workshop, I watched memory screen and it wasn't the same as watching photosynthesis or Mindfield because it's from such an early period in skating, like 1990, 1991. Mm. Yeah, I think one of those things, visually it's super important. It's like the extracurriculars from skating, for lack of a better way to put it, the stuff in the video that isn't skating and just the way it's put together artistically is like super important and really profound on just for lack of a better way to put it, like artier skateboard video production in general. Mm. So I don't have like as strong of opinion or as many things I could say about memory screen as I could talk about something like Minefield. But I just think the significance of it in terms of like, again, artier skate videos can't be understated. Mm. And also like the skating in it is really sick, especially Diadex part. Like when I talked to Greg for the Quarter Snacks, five favorite parts with him and he picked Diadex part as one of them and he was talking about how progressive Rob was as a street skater at that time. I think like finding that context out gave me a new lens to watch it through. Mm. So yeah, overall like memory screen, just a very, very important video. And I once missed out on getting a, a, I found a copy of memory screen on eBay, yellow tape and all. Oh, nice like 20 quid on ebay and i forgot about the bidding ending and i forgot to bid on it and it went for like 25 quid i think so that's always haunted me oh shit i never managed to get memory screen it's the one workshop (laughs) video i don't have although i don't have an orange copy of photosynthesis oh really okay black so i want i want to try find an orange copy of photosynthesis one day yeah if anyone hears this has a copy of memory screen (laughs) part ways with hit me up Awesome. Well, yeah, let's wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Farron. This was really fun. Thank you. Great. No, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's it for my conversation with Farron. Follow him on Instagram at Farron Golding. Visit his website, farrengolding.com, to check out some of his work from the last 10 years for quarter snacks, closer, slam city skates, and more. Go watch his part in his friend Joe Allen's latest video, Troubleshooting, which came out a few weeks ago. And keep an eye out for his upcoming favorite spot pieces for quarter snacks. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards. <laughs>